Greetings, all ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. In this episode, we'll be doing t 1318 to 1331, and as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1318 Death World, more like death food, written by Syntho Stiller. Dr. Salah Dal was relaxing on his couch, ears splattering some, as he was reading the latest issue of the medical journal Galactic Health. One section caught his eye. Medical trials and experiments have proven the incredible physiology of the latest species, humans. While they have only just appeared on the galactic stage, they're already demanding attention from other races just by how they're built alone. The first image that came out, when one of them made Dr. Salah's jaw drop, were the images of how flexible human bodies are. The ones he's seeing are those provided by a human exercise regimen called yoga. He's actually starting to wonder if he'll find a human crawling around in the vents. He was startled out of his reading by the harsh buzzing of his signaler. Fishing it out of his coat pocket, he saw the message that was flashing in the air through the holographic projection. Code Dela, immediate treatment required. He hasn't seen that alert in ages. Code Dela refers to someone ingesting poisonous materials. Wasting no time, he immediately threw his coat back on, ordered his room AI to close up once he left, and hopped into his car. With a gentle whine of the engine, he began to make his way over to the medical center as fast as he could. Screeching to a halt at this designated parking spot, he relied on the car's automated security to lock it up for him as he jogged over to the emergency entrance. His bright blue fur rustled from the wind. I'm here! Where's the code, Taylor? Taylor Dull announced calmly as he passed through the doors. Emergency ICU, second floor, he luck. The assistant replied quickly, handing him a hollow card that contained whatever information they compiled. May I have a human medical expert, Dr. Samdi, providing assistance? How bad is it? Silva Dahl questioned, bringing up the records. Profuse bleeding from the mouth, the assistant explained as they were walking towards the ICU. Field scans also show extreme inflammation along the digestive tract. We're worried that they're already causing cellular breakdown. What happened? What did the HELOC eat? Siladel continued, growing more and more disturbed as he listened and read. Packaged human food, the assistant answered. We haven't identified the brand or the specifics. All we know that it's what the humans called soup. Kaya, Siladel cursed, his teeth bared. And this Dr. Sumpty is a translator updated for the human language yet. We're having issues with that, sir, the assistant sighed worriedly. They have too many languages to decipher. We've only gotten one out of a hundred translated. Sumpty seems to be using what was translated, though, so we're okay there. What? A hundred? Seriously? Siladel exclaimed in disbelief. Ah, oh, never mind. Come on, let's go. Thanks to the emergency designation of their route, they didn't need to weave through the obstacles or civilians. It was a very quick jog over to the ICU. And as they approached, they could hear a frenzied conversation of the medical workers as well as an unknown voice with them, most likely Sandy. Once they burst through the door, Siladal already started feeling sick. The Heluk, huge and bursting with muscle, had blood all over its mouth, throat, and good portion of its upper chest. And as Siladal and the assistant made their way over, the Heluk leaned over the bed to wrench out a thick stream of blood onto the repurposed waste pan. Standing, separate from the crowd, was a dark-skinned human with almost night-black tuft of fur on its head. 
That must be Dr. Somdi. Practically stabbing the translator in his ear, Silver Dull immediately approached the human. You are Dr. Somdi. The human nodded after gently tapping his own translator. Yes, I am Dr. Siladal, I presume. I am. He nodded back, then looked back at the sickening sight of the galactic brute having lost its mind in sheer terror, then back at the human. Please tell me that you have something. What happened? We need a stomach pump right now, Somdi said firmly. Nida consumed uh, a small bowl of ramen that had intense concentrations of capsaicin in it. Once his stomach has been cleared, you will need a solution containing high concentration of casein to neutralize the irritant. Wait, milk? Celadal asked incredulously after some confusion after whether the translation was correct. Are you telling us to give him milk? Are you sure? I can direct you to the numerous scientific studies regarding the biochemistry between the two, Somdi replied with a serious expression. But yes, if you don't get the capsaicins to get off his system, his body will continue to attack the infected areas with the intensity that you are seeing, leading to a catastrophic internal damage and even total system shutdown. Celadol was momentarily distracted by another wretching fit from the Helak who let out another outpouring of blood onto the pan, nearly filling it, before returning back to hyperventilating, despite all the neurodepressants administered to him. Do you happen to have any of that? Siladal asked, his expression dark and disturbed. I do, but your team won't allow me, despite my certification from the Galactic Medical Board. Somebody nodded, casting a glare at the workers trying to help the Heluk. Siladal can see why. The Heluk was too old, medically, to be ingesting milk. At this point, all it would do was make his situation work by making him squirt liquid out the other end. But if it doesn't need to be digested, just come into contact with whatever poison he ingested. Everyone, allow Samdi to administer the aid to the Hillock. Now! Saladal barked out immediately. Samdi, get whatever you need ready. Everyone else, get the pump ready. I want his stomach completely empty by the time Samdi is prepared. Let's go! The ordeal passed by in a blur, as all operations, big and small, happened. All Saladal remembers was cold, disturbed anxiety. He'd never encountered the infamously powerful Hilak rendered to being a scared child by eating something. He remembered seeing one eat a thick length of steel just to prove a point, and smile off shattered, broken teeth. Now, though, the patient is finally calm, or rather, as calm as one can be. The neurodepressants finally took effect. The Heloc would remain in intensive care for some time, mostly for the rather terrifying sight of vomiting blood. However, Samdi ended up being correct. As soon as the milk was administered and promptly pumped out, the Heloc condition began to improve. And now, Siladal was trying to decompress and work his way out of the focus by relaxing in the medical center's eatery, having himself a simple plate of organized fruits and vegetables. Opposite him was the human doctor, Samdi, who let out a deep huff after setting his bowl of soup down. Siladel noticed his eyes and nose were running. He was breathing rather heavily and sniffling often. And then his heart sank. Samdi, please tell me that is not what the Helak ate. Samdi let out a wheezing laugh. <laughs> Don't worry about it, me. I grew up eating food like this. 
though I will admit those Koreans sure know how to give you a good kick in the mouth. Siladol stared at him. What do you mean, grew up eating that? Isn't that the same kind of poisonous substance that broke that Hillock patient? It's not poison, at least not for us. Somebody laughed again, blowing his nose into a fifth piece of tissue. Well, depending on your neck of the woods, it's either pure hellfire or just a tickle of the tongue. You no, know, trust me, there are plants that are far worse than what's in here. Siladel could only stare in horrified shock for several moments, staring at the empty bowl, splattered with dots of bright orange soup. What are you exactly eating, doctor? Ramen, somebody chuckled with a groan. To be more specific, Nongshimshin ramen, he said, and continued with an ambiguous, sarcastic, mocking voice. Gourmet spicy. Somebody then returned to a normal tone. A friend of mine from America bought these online on an impulse, and is now practically eating them lunch and dinner. I sure hope he's drinking his milk, or building his tolerance fast. This is my second bowl, and it's, uh, to be frank, already kind of kicking my ass. You humans can eat that, Zilladol exclaimed, practically losing his mind on the absurdity of what he was hearing. Not all of us, somebody laughed again, taking a few large gulps of his mock. I, for one, won't be making a meal out of this, probably an occasional thing. But if you're thinking about the Helok, no, it's not dangerous for us. At least not so long as we don't consume hundreds of balls of this ramen in one sitting. And as somebody fished out the last of his meal, something that definitely screamed sweet, Siladel could only continue his stare deciding that he'll need to read up as much as he could on human physiology as well as cuisine. Saladal dropped the report when he spotted a pair walking through the civilian entrance, a human as well as Yurtha, the six-eyed creature rapidly glancing around. Saladal noticed that his arms were shaking rapidly. So, um, I, I don't think he's okay. The light-skinned, yellow-haired human began as he pointed towards his thumb towards the Yurtha. He was pretty quiet and calm, but now he's just, uh, uh, weird. Hey, you got a bug on you, the Earther stated rapidly, and then instantly followed up by a smack on the human's cheek. Ah, oh, feck, the human cursed, clutching his cheek. The counter's dirty, you know, the Earther said, pointing at a random spot on the counter. Without even waiting for a response, he looked away towards the wall. Why is it so white in here? Are we in a starship or what? And what's with all the people over there? Is there a pandemic? Hey, do you have any good food? I'm hungry. Saladol and his assistant looked at each other for a moment before silently agreeing. Sir, um, can you come with us, please? What, why? The Earther exclaimed, taking up an exaggerated pose with a point. You, with the man, taking me away because I know things. You'll never catch me. The Earther only made it a few steps before he collapsed like a puppet whose strings were cut. By the time Scylla and his assistant brushed over, the Earther was already having seizures. Saladal and his assistant immediately held him down, the doctor already on his communicator to declare a code Dela. You answer me, Scylla pointed at the slack-jawed human. What did he have? Drinks, food, anything? I, I, um... The human stammered for a moment. Uh, he, uh, he, his usual, and he, he wanted to try some, uh, some stuff. What stuff? Siladal raised his voice. I, uh, c- c- coffee and ch- 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 chocolate, uh, ch- just, just a little, though, the human answered. Siladal let out a silent curse. Just like a few weeks ago with Hilak. Different food this time, however. He's not sure if this is better or worse compared to the ramen zombie he was eating. The other medical workers finally arrived and helped transport the Yurtha onto a maglev carrier. 
securing him to keep his seizures under control. Siladel allowed himself to relax for a moment once they began transporting the Yotha to intensive care, at least for the time being until his situation improves. Hearing some snapping sounds, Siladel found the same human eating a brown rectangle in his hand. Although the wrapper was torn during opening, he didn't need to read it to know what he was looking at. A bar of chocolate, a sweet sauce or a solid that human obsess over and even believe puts them in a good mood. Siladel immediately marched over and swiped the bar of death from the human's hand. Well, hey, what the feck, man? The human exclaimed. Is this what you gave him? He demanded, holding up the bar. Yeah, but only a little bit. The human replied, and then pointed at the bar. You see those cuts and such? I gave him just, just like, like a quarter of that. Siladel saw what he meant. On one side, the chocolate was shaped into what it owned many bars, with the company logo, no doubt. After some quick head math, he figured that he was the best shot here. He already began marching his way to the toxin lab. Although he's not sure if it was a one-time scenario, it's all he's got. As soon as he has the weight of the earth, he just needs to determine how much of the poisonous toxins that was inside this piece of chocolate to get an idea of how to treat the earth. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1319 Story number one, part one. Particles, written by Ozzy Endeavor. First contact situations are always exciting. What new knowledge and culture might be found with the species? Our first contact with humanity was far from the list, but was certainly interesting. We were just exploring a new region of the galaxy when we passed through a system with several planetary bodies orbiting a single star. We were just going to map it out and move on, but then we picked up radio waves originating from the third planet from the star. We obviously knew what it meant, and the bridge was bubbling with excitement as we came to a stable orbit around said planet and started broadcasting the standard procedures. Whoever was on the planet responded swiftly, and eventually we could actually start asking questions. We let them have the first, as they were probably new to all of this. Are we the first you have met, or are there others out there? You are not the first. There are many other species, most friendly. The others are far away. Our turn. Have you left your planet yet? The furthest we've gotten is the fourth planet, and that was only a few people, uh, for a short time. So they were young, but seemed capable. What brought you to our system? We were mapping this area for the galaxy and found your radio waves. Yada yada, all the standard stuff that we asked every new species, nothing out of the ordinary, until we asked about their progress in particle physics and chemistry. Had they found all elements yet? Did their planet even have all 94? How long is your periodic table? 118 elements. Not their others. 118. 118? What were they on about? Anything like that couldn't be stable, could it? 118. Are there 118 elements on your planet? No, we created the ones after 94 synthetically. There was silence aboard the ship. Did the species just claim not only are there 24 elements beyond the boundaries of the periodic table, but that they invented them? I guess we were silent for quite a while because we received a message asking if everything was alright. We are fine. Our table is only 94 long. How were you able to create new elements? We did not know that that was possible. 
Basically, we just used an enormous device to accelerate smaller atoms close to the speed of light before letting them collide. If we get lucky, the nuclei fuse and a new element is born. That was the craziest thing any of us had ever fucking heard. Is the process safe? We wish that we can convey a rainbow of emotions we felt through the message. Theoretically, it could generate a black hole, but don't worry, it would evaporate before doing any damage. We decided to move on to a different topic. Have you found all 12 fundamental particles? Actually, uh, we currently know 31. We stopped asking questions. Part 2. Nuclear Do you know why first contact with humanity was memorable? The whole crew were on edge throughout the rest of the transmission. Some aboard thought that the humans were bluffing in order to impress us. If that's true, it was working, and others were laughing at the absurdity of it all. I honestly wouldn't be surprised if they told us that they had discovered a fourth fundamental force or something. We eventually sent a word back to the cradle planet about the new species, and soon enough ships from every race in the Union arrived in orbit in order to welcome humanity to the galaxy. And, as was the custom, a member from each species was to land on Earth and act as an ambassador. I suggested we drew lots. My captain suggested I get my ass off the ship. So, here I am, on Earth with the embodiment of Chaotic Neutral as my guide. Fantastic. I arrived at what was apparently a facility that generated energy. To be completely honest, I can't remember the first part of the tour. Though, out of fear or boredom, I really can't tell, it wasn't until we walked past the specific area that I paid attention. And if you look to our right, you'll see the next destination, the cooling towers. I'm sorry, um, the cooling towers for what? The nuclear reactor, of course, sir, harnessing the power of fission to generate energy for the region of our great planet. Don't you mean fusion? Nuclear fusion? No, 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 no I mean fission, unlocking the very power of atoms nucleus. Isn't that incredible? What do you mean by that? Why was I getting the feeling like he was going to say something stupid? By launching a neutron into a nucleus and making it rip itself apart, of course. There it is. Please tell me this is safe. Of course it is. Some old designs were prone to meltdowns, but uh, we worked out the kinks. I guess it's only natural to be too wary of the same process as a nuclear bomb. <laughs> oh great, they use this, uh, this, uh, I'm sorry, uh, did he just say... Bomb. B bomb Oh, yes, uh, I I'm sure you know about nuclear weaponry. Uh, care to explain? Oh, you know, a bomb. You can strap it to a missile or something. I think there are two types. One uses fission, the other fusion. Anyway, they're, they're pretty powerful. Can't level a city in, I think, a few minutes. Maybe one? I, I don't know. What the actual feck? These are purely hypothetical, right? Oh, no, 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 there are over a dozen thousand worldwide, though only two have actually ever been used in war. Humanity hasn't just unlocked the power of the nucleus, they have unleashed it. Get me off this fucking planet! Part 3. Dyson So yeah, I wanted to get off that ticking time bomb of a planet as soon as I could, but first I had to get through the interrogation. It's a process that happens when every new species, after giving us a tour of a section of the planet, they get to uh, interview the ambassador. Everyone calls the interrogation because that's what it basically is. 
The new species asks all the questions it can to get as much knowledge out of the poor ambassador before finally letting them go. Back you, Captain. I was led to a room with a human male already standing in the middle, gesturing to a place that I could sit. The fact that it was built for a biped made it awkward, but it did what I could. Almost immediately after the tour guide closed the door behind me, the interviewer started questioning me. So how big is your planet? 14,400 kilometers in diameter. What types of stars does it orbit? An F-type star called Rama. Have you constructed a Dyson Sphere yet? I don't know. What is that? The interviewer looked at me with a confused expression on his face. A Dyson Sphere. It's an artificial, um, thing that collects as much energy from the star as possible, usually depicted as a giant megastructure, but oh, uh, you probably have a Dyson Swarm instead, am I right? What the actual hell is this guy talking about? Should I really be getting that surprise anymore? I'm afraid that we don't know what that is either. No, it's a series of millions of solar panels orbiting the star in a large swarm, or alternatively mirrors that redirect the light to a collecting point. You really don't have one? The last part was said with a little disappointment. I have never heard of anything like that. Since y'all species said that they only just started traveling to other planets, we thought that you were behind us. But from what you've just explained, no, 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 I think you've misunderstood. We don't have one. We're not up to that challenge yet, but since you seem so advanced, we just assumed that you would have one by now. Is this guy serious? Is this just an elaborate joke? Is he saying that humanity just comes up with grand ideas for inventions way ahead of their current technological development? That's just, uh, stupid, right? Two Earth years have passed. Hello, it's been a while since I wrote in this thing, hasn't it? Uh, well, congrats, younger me, you were right, it was stupid. That didn't stop humanity for asking for other races for materials and transport, with the promise to pay them back with a project they're working on. That didn't stop them from constructing a fecking Dinsland Swarm, or whatever the hell it's called. And you know what? It actually fecking worked! So, they built more. So, um, yeah, that's how humanity became the sole provider of energy to the entire Interstellar Collective Union. More progress. End of story. Story number two. Recommendations written by Algy, Father Anthracite. Next! Hello! The man passes the papers across the counter. What is the nature of your visit? I'm here on an eating holiday. The man says, a smile on his face. The small tentacles flipping through the paperwork stop. The custom officer looks up. In front of the counter is a roughly two meter tall bulbous pink primate with patchy fur. This is not his first encounter with one of these earthling. The tentacles start flipping through the paperwork again. Yep, say, um... Do you have any recommendations for a good place to eat lunch, huh? No worries, sir. I'm an adventurous eater. I'm sorry, sir. Regulations prevent me from endorsing any local establishments. I could get into serious trouble if I were to say something like, uh, check out Brady on 8th on Main and go around the corner for dessert and drinks at the old standard. How long is your stay? Oh, uh, that's too bad. Well, then, uh, how about a favorite dish? J j just two days, sir. Definitely can't tell you to get the grappler platter for the extra dumal sauce. The officer is now applying stamps to several forms, and I would certainly never tell you to mention me by name to the server for a special treat. Anything to declare? I see, Officer Reglin, um, strict rules huh? won't make a world go round. Uh, too bad, really. Um, I like to get a taste for the local spots, just not just touristy places. Nothing fancy to declare. Uh, 
Sign here, here, and initial here. Here, here, and here. I can tell you to pick up some dried perps as they are a local specialty, but I couldn't tell you that the Zeptig Sundries is the best place to pick them up. Signed and initialed, uh, perps, huh? Uh, I'll have to find a place that sells them. Indeed, uh, hope you enjoy your stay. Oh, I'm pretty sure I will. If you are ever on Earth in the Chicago area, feel free to look me up. I know all the good pizza spots, sir. Thank you, officer. The man slid a business card across the counter. The customs officer handed him his paperwork and picked up the card. I might just be by next annum on vacation. I have several spots lined up for visits already. The card slides into a pocket. A day or two in Chicago would round out my itinerary nicely. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. The man gathers his things and strolls off humming. The officer spends a few minutes updating records and thinking of Chicago-style deep dish. Next! End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1320. Story number two. How does it taste? Written by Sinchi Dev. Excuse me, uh, what? I wonder, how does it taste? Humans are weird. I mean, achieving the title of Apex Predator in a planet with millions of species requires a special kind of being. But humans are really weird, even for predator races like myself. Shouldn't we worry about it after we kill it? Okay. The human points his rifle, one of those ancient projectile-based rifles, and shoots. The gigantic Manathon groans in pain, then crumbles. Okay, now it's dead. I wonder, how does it taste? I'll, I'll go find out then. Um, the, the company said that we can manage this disposal however we see fit, right? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. We are a part of an extermination company that deals with numerous species around the galaxy. If you have an invasive species, a monster outside its territory, or some experiment gone wrong, you'd call us. We've been in the business for many galactic cycles. Ever since non-predator species had troubles with irresponsible xenos and their dangerous pets. He comes back with a few slices of meat from the Manathan and unpacks his portable grill, a kind of cooking device humans use. Want to find out about the taste too? Sure, why not? He starts cooking the meat. Smells good, but I have to know. Peter, can I ask you something? Of course, Sam. Um, what do you want to know? Why was your first question, how does it taste, instead of, can I kill it? Sorry, uh, but I don't understand the question. I mean, weren't you worried that you couldn't kill it? Peter looks confused. What do you mean? Uh, did it look like an immortal creature from the mythology of your planet? No, no, I mean, uh, how did you know that you were able to kill it? I mean, uh, it was alive. If, if it's alive, it can be killed. That's how the killing concept works, right? Peter said with a chuckle. But what if you couldn't? You mean like a zombie? Or if it was invulnerable? What's a zombie? It's a being that is dead, but it still moves, and since it's dead, it can't be killed unless you completely destroy it. No, no, what a horrible concept. Let me rephrase. How did you know that your skills were enough to kill it? I don't, um... Uh, why wouldn't them? I start to understand. Peter, have your species ever encountered a being that was too dangerous or too strong and couldn't be killed? Well, um, no, I think not. Uh, not really. There was Moby Dick and some mythical creatures, but, but none that, that couldn't be killed. So the only limitation your species could be able to kill a being is that it should be alive first. Well, yes, um, isn't that the same for everyone? Are, are you okay? In my planet, there's a being called the Zopron. 
I remained the one being that we were not able to kill before achieving FTL travel. Even now, some people still fear it. The Manathon you just killed is the same for the people of this planet. Oh, you mean like Moby Dick? I don't. It was a giant animal that killed a group of men that tried to hunt it down. I understand you now, Glob. No, we don't have a Moby Dick. Earth, maybe it's not as dangerous as I thought. Peter looks offended. That's uh, what you think? Well, you don't have an unkillable monsters, do you? You haven't faced a monster that kills for fun and eats anything in its path. Peter looks angry. He starts looking for something on his tablet. Maybe I went a bit too far. Humans are a proud species after all. Here, Peter says. Look at this. He gives me the tablet. What? What monstrous creatures are these? A creature full of fur and giant tusks and a giant feline with teeth as long as your arm. Wait, these are not pictures. These are paintings. You're trying to trick me, human. These are not pictures. These are paintings. Surely from your... No. The woolly mammoth and the saber-tooth. What an appropriate name. Uh, we're quite real. Uh, the reason we don't have any pictures of them is that we killed them before even being a civilization. How could this be? He doesn't seem to be lying. He takes the tablet from my hand, searches again, and hands it to me again. There they are. It's skeletons. They were real. I can't process this. The Manathan beats his ready. Peter looks pleased with my dumbfounded expression. Well, Glob, it seems I can have missed you. Here. He hands me some perfectly grilled Manathan meat. Let's eat. When I was a kid in my hometown, there was someone that thought that he could hunt a Zapron. He was obviously mistaken, and one day later, the police had to go and look for his remains. To this day, I remember what my father told me that day. I wonder, my boy, what drives those monsters? Peter was mistaken. There was an unkillable monster on Earth, and I found the answer to my father's question. Wake up, Glob. Tell me, how does it taste? End of story. Story number one. Minigun, written by Hope Data Adam. Ready up! I heard my commander shout, and I and my comrade stood up in the trench, our weapons in hand and our sights are high. We, the Gurner Confederacy, have been called to war by the Galactic Federation against the Greater Terran Union. The GTU and the humans presumably violated galactic law, which led to this war that we are fighting in. Humans, several sun cycles ago, after joining the Galactic Federation, already sparked trouble that enraged the entire Galactic Federation Council, so much that we were being sent to war with them for it. Not like I care about the reason the war started. Being a conscript means I'm not willing enough to look into the background of things like this. Now that our artillery bombardment has passed, we will charge the human lines with all of our might. Stand proud, Connors! This is a day where you claim glory and honor for your family. We the Gurners were chosen as the G of Saw because we are the most anatomically closest to the humans. We're bipedal with digigrade legs. The humans classify them as. We have two arms and we also breathe oxygen and are carbon-based life forms. This will make the invasion of human worlds much easier for the Galactic Federation. The humans are staggered, weak, even they themselves are fractured. Accustomed, we were given a brief look at the opponent. The humans run a decentralized government system, where multiple governments and nations exist being guided by a central government. 
Their weapons are unreliable, insignificant. Just yesterday, I received a message from our line breakers that managed to decrypt the human's transmissions. It said something unbelievable and baffling that everyone had read and laughed. Shipments of many guns on their dropships to front lines. The humans use kinetic weapons as their primary offense and defense weapons. Using the informal word guns is quite common to classify them. A weapon so small that they call it a mini is so insignificant. How will they ever do damage to the enemy? I wondered. We will bring glory to the Confederation and we will bring pride to the Federation. Ready yourselves, the battle is upon us. We stepped forward and pushed ourselves against the wall, awaiting the signal to go over the trench and charge. And that signal came, a wailing alarm that spread across the entire trench of my battalion. We screamed at the top of our lungs while we pushed ourselves up over the trench and set our legs onto the dirt. Some of us began firing while most continued to charge the enemy, including me. I see the enemy's position, a line of prefabricated bunks similar to ours as well as trenches. It felt like a full minute of running and sprinting and I began to feel ill in my stomach, like impending doom was about to strike me and my battalion. Then I heard a faint whirring. Instinctively, I dropped down onto the ground on my stomach, and a rain of bullets and a deafening sound of prrrt bombarded us. To my sights, my friends and comrades fall, and the chaotic melancholy of defending fire is mixed with the screams and yells of my fellow soldiers. There on the dirt and mud of the battlefield, I truly felt fear. I never faced combat and only just recently been conscripted, but I'm sure what I felt there was true fear, the fear of death and the fear of dishonor. I cowered like a coward, quickly trembling and my hands shaking as I hold my weapon close to me. Just as quick and as unexpected as it began, it ended abruptly, and the battlefield fell silent for a moment before cries of my comrades echoed across the blasted hellscape. I heard some call out to their mothers, some apologized to their fathers and siblings. Few muttered a vow, Colossia, Naya. I breathed heavily, scared to move an inch, the sound of boots slowly becoming closer. My heart raced a mile a second and my vision blurred. I asked myself what to do, but it didn't matter as the enemy was already right in front of me. The humans yelled at me to let go of my weapon, but the guns trained on me. I did so without hesitation, and quickly afterwards, they pulled me to my feet. I was ashamed of myself, displaying cowardice to the enemy and surrendering without even a fight. Not only to shame myself, but to my family's name as well. They moved my hands behind my head and began to escort me back to the defensive line. I didn't look back at my trench, nor did I remember any other member of my battalion being captured. All I heard from behind me was yelling and gunfire, probably the humans clearing out our trench. As I jumped down into the humans' trenches, I finally see what caused such a hellfire. Two compact multi-barreled weapons. They are huge, mounted on the edge of the trench. One of the humans that saw my bewildered face chuckled and pointed at it. They talked to me. Beautiful, aren't they? Miniguns do wonders to meet shields like you. So, they are those miniguns. Before I could even respond, a moment later, I was pushed from behind to keep walking. Chaos in a compact package, the very definition of a bullet hose, 
the antithesis of precision. A hammer to crack a nut, the minigun, six barrels, endless fire, a terrifying weapon of mass annihilation. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1321. Story Double One. Lost in translation, written by Truly Visceral. The humans are a rather new spacefaring species. They were added to the Union not but twenty solar cycles ago. In an attempt at strengthening relationships with the other species, they have chosen to send some of their personnel to serve aboard the Union ships. Come our surprise when we got a human engineer, and he was the strangest, most puzzling individual that we had ever met. Between insane ramblings of why the Loch were performing her intercourse with the metallic substances, and saying that any action any of his fellow crew members ever did was ailing, he was mostly ignored. Mainly because everyone just had no idea what to do with him. Except Yutath, who just happened to be a Loch. It is never a good idea to insult a Loch with a warrior class, or any Loch for that matter, and he didn't enjoy the intercourse comment. It took five of us to calm him down, one for each arm and another for the head. The human seemed confused to the matter, but quickly apologized and said that he didn't intend to offend. Now, perhaps, this seems like an exaggeration, but let me remind you, the humans have been a part of the Union for only twenty solar cycles, or years, as they call them, but that is inaccurate since one standard solar cycle is 1.2 of theirs, and no one aboard of our ship ever met one in person before. So these actions didn't help their cause much. But the captain said that the order came from high command, so our complaints were mostly ignored. The Loch, however, are very prideful people, and it is almost impossible to reason with them once angered. So once again, Yatath didn't enjoy this in the slightest. His work didn't help either. The end result for every repair or maintenance check he ever performed resulted in a performance increase of the device by 15 to 20 percent. Yet the pieces were replaced in a completely different manner than the blueprints would show. And when there was no replacement parts, he improvised a solution, be it with copious amounts of adhesive or using a far more pipes and wires than were necessary. And in two separate cases, physically hitting the machine until it turned back on. Once again, most complaints were ignored, except those last two. Those got him locked in his quarters for some time. Although, maybe through tremendous luck, his violence managed to somehow move the loose wire back into place, so his lockdown lasted only a fraction of what it normally should. The loch would much rather have people do what they are told, as they are told, so once more, Yitoth didn't enjoy this. But even stranger still where the rest and break cycles. Though humans have similar rest cycles as most of their species, this human exaggerated them. The first time, another one of the engineers found him unconscious in a vent. After alerting the medic and making everyone think that he was either being aborted or they were having a serious life support malfunction, he calmly stands up and asks why everyone is making so much noise. He was just resting or, um, napping, as he explained. This happened two more times before everyone agreed to first attempt to awaken him instead of running for the manic. At his breaks, it was decided that inhaling the smoke of the dried leaves of a plant he brought on board with him was a perfect break activity, and then started the aforementioned incoherent ramblings, as well as the attempts to start discussions about the meaning of life, technology, 
and wondering if they had any pizza in the food storage. This plant was determined to have some hallucinogenic effect on him. The Loch have a significant distaste for laziness and find the use of foreign chemical, specifically for recreational use, an insult. So one more time, Yatoth was not happy. Over time, the crew decided that this new crewmate's antics were more humorous than strange. Some attempted to incite his ramblings and subsequently recorded them. Others recorded his strange solutions to simple technical problems in an attempt at finding an explanation to them. And whilst almost everyone warmed up to his strange new person, Yatath could contain himself no longer. Security footage shows the Yatath had threatened the human and challenged him to an armed duel. The human decided to simply laugh and said no, and went back to fixing a broken pipe, muttering Joker under his breath. Allow me to say that if we weren't docked in maintenance station, Yatath's anger would have most likely killed us all. He decided to attempt to ram the human into the wall, though the human dodged, probably heard Yatath stomping, and he just crashed into the many pipes. Now, I say things would have gone terribly wrong if we weren't docked, because if the ship's engines would have been on, these pipes would have highly flammable substances flowing through them, the byproduct of using an older version of the modern warp engine. Not that there wasn't any in the pipes, they just weren't flowing. So the substance just dripped onto the floor, and it just so happens that the human had one of those smokes in his mouth, which fell onto the floor as well. So, now there's a very angry warrior Loch, and a confused human, and a framing room filled with flammable substances. The human seemed to act out of reflex. He pushed the Yatoth out the room, and then sealed it. The explosion wasn't enough to blow a hole in the ship. It wasn't even enough to compromise the structural support but it was enough to blow through the maintenance door, and we weren't pressurized in a vacuum of space. Yatath was fine, and Locke was extremely durable creatures. He only had some minor burns across his body. But the human... Well, uh, if it wasn't for the nearby medical station, he'd probably have died right then. Before I continue, no, the human was not fixing one of these pipes while holding a flame in his mouth, but rather one of the biological waste pipes... At least one thing he did make sense. We weren't sure what would happen later. Were the humans going to reprimand for one of them performing many actions that anger the prideful Loch? Were we going to be reprimanded for having a Loch be amongst our crew when a barely understood species joined? Was Yutath to be reprimanded for not controlling his anger? The answer was no to all of those things. The human woke up after some time and several surgeries and the first thing he asks, he asks if the copper zinc alloy was taking us. He begged for no charges to be made and no action to be taken except for himself. He, for some reason, wanted to take full responsibility for the previous incident. He thought that Yatath had simply tripped on one of the tools when he was fixing a pipe. He wanted to be the one the High Council reprimanded instead. He even submitted a report describing his experience aboard the ship. He seemed to complain that we were freezing his upper arm joint, yet eventually thawed it out. Whatever that is. But the report is, as a whole, exceedingly positive. He seemed to mostly enjoy when someone was patient to listen to his nonsensical rants, and found their subsequent recordings just as humorous as we did. He also wondered if we were grateful for fixing the small insect-like engineering of some of our devices and machines and apologized for misplacing his low temperature those two times. This confused everyone, even when he barely escaped death. 
He still did and said these strange things with no apparent answer. Yetath was, for the first time, not angered by his antics, but rather just as confused as everyone else. And then we received a package. An updated codex giving greater details in human culture. And an updated translator, specifically for human vernacular and jargon. The strangest thing I have ever witnessed was not any of this human's antics, but the scene of a lock bowing and crying, giving an apology gift to someone that wasn't their mate. End of story. Story number two. The Giggles, written by Rosie013. Tazar couldn't believe that all of the stupid things the human had done, she was now laughing. Immediate death was not funny, nor was the whole fires raining from the sky doomsday apocalypse invasion thing. It had started as a relatively ordinary day in the colony. The only thing of interest was that the humans in the next settlement over were having some farmer's market celebration. The kind of relaxed bumpkin amusement that was part impromptu theme park, part lazy Sunday afternoon with the neighbors... A chance for Tazar to get out of her parents' habitat, a unit, for the day. Everything was fine. She had caught up with a human friend, Maddie, had a nice win at the hoops, and was deciding whether to spend her thin savings on sugar candy when the override broadcast hit every tech pad in sight. Invasion! That got everyone moving. Strangely, most of the humans were still laughing, patting each other on the back and swapping polite farewells. Everyone else just ran including Tazar. When the first bombardment hit, chaos was total. Great mounds of dirt and rubble flung sky-high, any chance of organized flight gone. Somehow, human Maddie ended up in the lee of an overturned stall with her, bleeding from a deep gash. Tazar quickly put pressure on the entry with the torn fabric of her clothing, the only material that she had at hand. And Maddie started laughing. Not the pleasant, innocent laugh of a long-time friend, but the mad, hysterical laugh of a clinically insane. Stressed and not understanding this unexpected reaction, Tazar could only stop and wonder, why? Why, of all the stupid things the human could possibly do after surviving fleeing from such death, why laugh? Human Maddie stopped and looked her straight in the eyes with deadly seriousness. All the other humans running about were flowing back into the market grounds armed, apparently having retrieved varmint rifles and the like from their now-destroyed vehicles. Dad's going to be so mad about not getting to judge the gourd competition. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1322 Story number two. No gods, only men. Written by Whiskey Lullaby. Atria's wings bore her aloft, fine toga and robes clinging to her perfect bronze skin. Noble features into the picture of quiet benevolence all godlings were taught to wear when they entered mortal lands. At her flanks were a dozen or so of her hoplites, celestial bronze armor gleaming in the sun, sculpted muscles flexing as they loosely held their spears and shields in sure grips. Inwardly, she smirked. The humans had been uppity of late, so a show of force was necessary, if only to ensure the poor mortals never went astray from the laws of their betters. Atria felt a swell of pride at being selected as the diplomat for this mission, to be the one to pull the humans back under the graceful wings of the gods, and to collect the requisite sacrifices from them, 
she looked forward to the food and some few of the mortals themselves to toy with. What greeted them, however, was not a dedication of simpering sycophants or a table for feasting. The palace she approached seemed grim and imposing, more a fortress than a home, and those that she had thought to be fools and revelers, here to bask in their glory, soon turned into equally imposing. Despite the brightly colored uniforms and pennants, they stood stock still, in train formation, holding oddly shaped spears. Atria huffed as she looked them over, scoffing at the lack of archers and how few swords there were. None even wore armor. She was not impressed. As she and her honor guard landed, a trumpet played a quick revali, and the lines of mortals parted, allowing one dour, modestly dressed individual to step forward. Atria might have thought him a low-level functionary, if not for the portrait she had been forced to memorize. The man before her was Emperor Lawrence Augustus IV. By her limited understanding of mortal politics, she had an amber of respect for the man, who so often shunned the tedious ostentation of the other leaders. However, she was God-born, and such a poor display before her grace was nothing less than an insult, subdued as it was. Atria landed lightly, nose already high in the air as she opened her mouth to address these mortals. Such a poor reception for messengers of the gods. Why do you not make merry? Where is the feasting and dancing? Have mortals forgotten the grace that we have long shown them? She declared in an imperious tone, her voice easily carrying across the near silent parade ground. A small bit of magic that even in these waning days could still shake men to his core. Or would have, if the men before her hadn't begun chuckling. Grace, uh, you call it, he said, laughing mirthlessly. <laughs> you enslaved our children to serve at your leisure. Your masters treat us as toys, horns, and tools, expendable and cheap as a sack of cloth. When we starve, you offer nothing. When we fall ill, you offer nothing. When I buried my sons, murdered by one of your distant kin, you offered nothing, save for a few coins and an unfulfilled promise of justice. Rage colored his voice, a black and deep hatred that flared in his eyes as he stared her down with such an intensity that despite herself she felt the hairs on her neck and the feathers on her wings rise before she forced it back down, covering fear with indignation. Her guards silently stood before her, forming a phalanx. It appears that you and yours need a reminder of their place. Surrender, Lawrence Augustus, and your realm shall be spared our displeasure, she said, lightning crackling at her fingertips as the guards raised their spears. Even at the weakest blood amongst the godlings could outclass a human warrior in terms of strength and agility, and none of their hoplites were weak-blooded. She herself was a daughter of the storms, capable of limited attack magic. She was sure of her victory should the mortals be foolish enough to fight, even outnumbered as they were. Plus, with no visible archers, she and her guard could fly away should things go south. However, these thoughts were shattered when three words from the Emperor, and echoed by his commanders, Ready! Aim! Fire! 
Hatches, whole world became one of fire and smoke for a moment. When her vision cleared, her hoplites were gone, and she was covered in a golden echo that only flowed from wounds of the gods. Swallowing, she looked down. Her surprise matched with the look of the fallen hoplite's face. What was left of it, that is. After a moment, the first scream started. A few wounded godlings shrieking at the unfamiliar sight of their own blood, and the terrible wounds that leaked had filled her ears. Her eyes darted up, meeting those of the human emperor again as she tried to find the words. Her legs powerless beneath her as fear began to settle in. You, 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 you just declared war on the gods. There will be consequences, she stammered, trying to whirl her wings to work as the human approached her. Good, I shall show those blowhards what war really looks like. He said simply, a sneer on his lips before turning to his men. Take her to the dungeons, finish off the rest. The last thing Atria saw before being clapped in iron and dragged away was the hoplites, the pride of dozens of noble houses begging for their lives as the mortal soldiers butchered them like cattle. End of story. Story number one. No one gets left behind. Written by Terran Micus. When humanity entered the galactic fold in the 2331st of their standard years, they were shocked to find that a number of them were taken by the various species that make up the council for testing. There are connotations that go along with this word in the human tongue, so it must be stressed that these tests were not malicious. Bow, with the exception of the testing done by the Quaz, most of them weren't. The tests have been a standard part of galactic induction since before the time of the Council itself. They simply select random members of society from various classes, subspecies, and creeds, and measure them by every standard imaginable. Height, weight, strength, bone density, muscle density, reproductive systems, brain wave activity, digestive systems, background bioelectricity, the list goes on. There has been a single truth to the testing that has stood the test of time since before the Council, and before the Empire, that was. Before even the Founders' conglomerate. The more testing you do on a species, the more results you get from the species, the more ergonomic the products you make for the species, the more trade you get with the species. When humanity found out that over 40,000 of their missing person cases were due to the tests, a wave of anger gave way to a wave of pragmatism. They lobbied to have their people sent home, or, if it wasn't possible, they demanded to be given official records of the deaths of their brothers and sisters, only to be told that no such records existed. This was in line with the standard response to the testing, but within 500 years of entrance to the council, every species forgets about their righteous rage and engage in tests of their own. But not humanity. Sure, there were some minor operations that happened off the books, but no one in human space would willingly admit that they had profited from testing. Instead, humanity welcomed the subjects of the testing with open arms, not all of them, but as many as they could support. Soon, the Dr. Zeno craze was all the rage in human space, with many human families adding a member from a pre-contact race. At first, this movement was about record-keeping, 
Then it became about saving the dignity and sanity of millions of individuals who would otherwise die alone and forgotten, left behind by the members of the council who are now more interested in the rest of the race as a trade partner than anything else. At around 2626 years by human calendar, there was a slight ripple. A new race entered the galactic fold, the Trevnan. As usual, the main races all stepped forward and presented the Trevnan people with gifts of technology specifically designed for them, in hopes of making a new trade partner. Unusually, the human ambassador stepped forward to make a gift to the new species, a single tablet that wasn't even optimized to the shutter speed of the Trevnan eyeball. The council balked at such a meager gift. Yet, the Trevnon now count the humans as the closest allies. In the human year 2708, the Kip are ready for initiation. The counselors of the major races made the gifts known, and again, the human offered a datapad. Once more, the humans had a new ally. 3271 human years, 900 after the humans joined the galactic fold, the council is a mere shadow of what it used to be with each new species opting to align themselves with the humans rather than enter trade with the older species of the Council. Knowing what the ramifications of such actions would be, the humans have declared their cessation from the Council, taking an unacceptable 82% of the species that joined after 2371 with them. While the Council prepares for war, we must see if there's a way to jump ship, to switch teams, if you will. I for one... Do not want to fight this newly formed Ohana Alliance. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1323 Early May on the Border of Nowhere Written by Equine Cascade Norris was a hoary was, bipedal, purple-skinned, bald, and very rich. Too rich for this stump. She looked at her tiny little room that she had to share with another trainee and a few possessions that she was allowed to bring with her. I am the heiress to the Vassin Galactic Conglomerate, but my grandpa said I needed to learn a trade or he would disinherit me. So here I am as a trainee engineer on a tiny station on the edge of the Great Void. She walked to the cafeteria, grabbed a generously could be called breakfast, and moved to watch her favorite show at the gym. There she is, the pilot trainee I was assigned to, Anna Dorning. A human, no less. She wakes up hours before anyone else and begins training. First, she lifts weights heavier than me. Then she moves into a complex dance routine that she repeats for over an hour. A young, blonde woman was dancing to the music. Pal, pal, Palpatine, greatest Sith ever lift. He was a cat that really got on. Pal, pal, Palpatine, Naboo's greatest love machine. It was a shame how he carried on. Norris watched her teammate and really, really wished that she didn't know what the song was about. She had joined the drab little training facility three months ago and was shocked to learn that she would be paired up with the one of the hated humans. Well, okay, no one really hates them, but it's just that when they were found and then integrated into the galactic community, everyone had to take a different vaccine every other day. For three months, just to avoid dropping dead if a human breathed anywhere near a station or a planet that they happened to be on. Plus, every time they met a new species, even remotely similar to them, the ensuing fraternization led to a new round of vaccines for everyone. Everywhere. Her being pure was peculiar. 
Humans are by no stretch of the imagination pacifists, but they are hardly ever joined any military organization that is not led by their own. I remember finding this odd. Eventually, I worked out the courage to ask her, and she had told me, Have you seen the ships? Which made no sense to me at the time. In hindsight, this should have been a bigger flag. The short-range star trackers are obsolete fighters by the standards of every known sentient species. The only reason that they're still in use is that precision tech is worthless so close to the Great Void. Norris remembered her first day of orientation. The senior engineer showed her how to fix a damaged engine. She moved closer to observe what she expected to be some microcircuitry carving, which she had studied extensively. Instead, the engineer grabbed an enormous wrench and hit the thing until it started working again. Percussive maintenance. Guess which species came up with that bit of engineering. Well, it does work, and I have to confess, it really is satisfying. Everything was going well for the first couple weeks, until call signs were being handed. Anna was particularly vibrating when she learned the color of her squad, but when she didn't get the number that she wanted, she challenged the one who had it to a duel. A five-foot-eight human walked up to an eight-foot trussic warrior and called him out in front of everyone. The instructors only agreed to the duel in hopes of minimizing the bloodshed. Anna moved in quickly the moment that the duel was agreed. Ducked under the claw that came up with a devastating uppercut that failed to connect because her arm could literally not reach his jaw. She then moved behind him, jumped on his back, and started to choke him. Everyone had to start to laugh at the failed punch, but quickly stopped when Trossock moved to slam his back, and Anna with it, against the nearest wall. As she was slammed, Anna actually spoke to him. I find your lack. Stop squirming of faith disturbing. Eventually, the Trossock fell to his knees and passed out. This, coupled with the spiritual quotes that she would often cite, convinced everyone that she was a deeply religious individual. That red five was probably a sacred number and color. Then, on one of our days off, I had to ruin my mystique by asking her about it. A fracking science fiction franchise. She was quoting from the original six movies, which she insisted had no sequels, and anyone else who said otherwise was lying, and a couple series. We're not even talking of recent VR stuff. No, it was the old 2D footage. Didn't even have smell or taste. That was a month ago. Now I made my peace with her insanity. I mean, who the hell joins a military outfit because the ships look like X-wings? Oh well, it's not all that bad. No one messes with me after her little jewel. She scared a lot of them off my back when she found out that I was being hazed. The fact that I slap her behind the head when she quotes her stupid show and she never retaliates certainly helps. Norris hefted the gift that she had made for Anna in her off hours. It had taken a lot of time, effort, some light bending of the laws of physics, and many pieces that she worked on had accidents in order to get the parts needed. Yo, Anna, you finished yet? Anna had of course finished after doing what Norris looked like some gravity-defying extremely low squat kicks. Uh, yep, uh, what's up, pup? Norris used to hate the nickname, but quickly realized there was a term of endearment. Nothing much. I got something for you. Catch. Norris threw the heavy cylindrical object to Anna, who caught it with a mixture of curiosity and apprehension. Both of these swiftly made place with two awe as Anna was shaking and barely able to stand on her feet. I I is this what I think it is? Norris nodded. 
Anna then wiped tears from her eyes, stood tall and ignited the lightsaber high above her head. Nora said, It's a repurposed ship plasma cutter with an oversized battery, an energy shield that dissipates the heat beyond a few microns off the blade and then circulates the heat back into the battery. It's on a dead man's switch and also... Norris was unable to finish her explanations as Anna turned off the blade and jumped into a hug. A nearly fatal one. As they made their way back to the room from the infirmary, the alarms blared, drawing Anna's apologies. Norris wanted to run to the safety of her room. Anna grabbed her by a collar and bodily dragged her to where the sound was coming from. Let me go, you imbecile! We're supposed to run away from alarms! Oh, come on! Where's your sense of adventure? In my room, let me go and get it. Nope. Norris crossed her arms and allowed herself to be dragged the rest of the way. The heels of her boots, the only thing in contact with the ground. Not that she had a lot of choice in the matter. The average human was insanely strong to begin with. But Anna had been augmented to survive the G-forces of human atmospheric fighters. As the sound started to become deafening, Anna stopped. Norris refused to stand up and simply fell on her back when Anna let her go. So, what's going on? Pirates. Norris got up into a crutch and moved for a closer look while staying in cover. There they were, a dozen or so heavily armed pirates and the entire station security stunned on the ground around them. Norris went over every possible scenario, what she could bargain with as the Vassin Harris how she could probably jerry-rig a functioning plasma rifle for Anna if they could get her to a workstation, etc. Though, before she could whisper to Anna her plan, the human had stepped from behind the wall, ignited the blade in her hand. If she doesn't die, uh, I'm gonna kill her. Captain Smur had been a pirate all his life. He had led successful raids and border stations several times, and now he was staring into a human holding a makeshift fire sword. If you drop the fire hazard and we won't stun you, we're not here for you, we just want the ships. Anna lifted her blade in front of her at a steady. Anna. Ecutor! Smurr sighed. The translator couldn't make heads or tails of what was said, but he knew an insult when he heard it, and he didn't have time to deal with it. Maximum stun, drop her. Then something insane took place. Anna began to swing a blade to deflect the shots. The pirates couldn't believe their eyes. It was impossible. Oh, that one nearly got... Oh, oh, not in the hair. Son of a... Really? The nose? Come on! It should be easier. Granted, she hadn't managed to block a single one, but she was still standing after a dozen direct hits. What in the hell are you? I'm a Jedi, like my father before... Oh! Norris had gotten out of cover and slapped Anna behind her head. She then looked at the pirates, then at Anna, and realized what she had done and quite literally dove back into cover with a form that would have earned her a pretty good score at the Summer Olympics. Smur rallied first out of all the pirates and was about to order to shoot to kill, but as he opened his mouth he saw the glowing yellow blade about to bisect him. He lifted his rifle to block the blade, but as it melted through, a single thought occupied his mind. All that freaking dieting for nothing! I could have had cake this morning! Norris was looking at the security footage with a very smug Anna next to her. They had been called into the chief of security office to explain how they managed to capture over a dozen armed pirates. The chief was looking at the moment the pirate captain was killed. Okay... 
Explain to me what in the seven heavens the trainee Anna used to cut the pulse rifle in half. It's a ship plasma cutter which... The chief lifted her hand to stop her and paused the footage once the blade made contact with the pirate, who promptly exploded into giblets. Why did that happen? The extreme heat boils the blood and the gases expand, leading to... Well, um, splat? Anna's smile dropped at that, probably at the memory of being covered in bits and pieces of flesh and blood. The chief resumed the recording. After the pirate blew up, Anna turned off a weapon and clipped it to her belt. Then she took a step towards the pirates and waved her hand in front of her. You will drop your weapons and surrender! The pirates looked confused, but dropped their weapons. The chief nodded and Anna's smugness became almost palpable, while Norris facepalmed. They left the room before Norris could chew Anna up for being a fool and endangering both their lives. Her datapad lit up with all kinds of alarms. She had kept it off during the meeting, and it was now having a hard time keeping up with the incoming messages. What is it? Several messages from multiple companies, human companies, wanting to get their own lightsabers. Anna looked shocked and appalled at this. I bet the humans on the station sent the footage to everyone they knew back home. Norris gave a death glare to the only human on the station, but decided to let it go and kept reading. Then her eyes nearly popped out of her head when she noticed the urgent message from the head of research and development at the Vassan Galactic Conglomerate. What's wrong? You look like you've just seen a pirate explode. Norris gave Anna a look that screamed too soon. My grandfather's company just got a military contract from the Terran Alliance for 2.7 billion Vassan lightsabers. Anna stopped walking at this. Seriously. They want my schematics and for me to take the early ship back home to talk improvements and... She trailed off as her surprised face turned into one of rage, but she eventually kept reading. To bring back the company prototype. Anna clutched the hilt to her chest like it was a puppy Norris had just threatened to put down. Calm down, I'm not going to do frack all for these idiots. Anna breathed a sigh of relief, but still clipped the blade behind her back. Well, out of Norris's reach. So, um, what are you going to do? Norris grinned. I made sure to file a patent when I got the damn thing to work. Do you have any idea how hard it was to make sure that it didn't ignite the whole station's atmosphere? Anna looked terrified. Um, no? Anyway, we still have a couple weeks of training before we graduate, and until then Grandpa and his company can wait. Anna nodded as they made their way into the shared room. All in all, it had been a pleasant day. A few months later, the Terran Alliance would unveil their newest standard piece of kit, the Anorisa lightsaber. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1324 Scum, Vermin, Human Written by Hull's Kitchen Sink I still remember when the humans invaded. It is not hard to remember, having happened a mere 20 cycles ago. I was unusual in that I survived the invasion, despite being a military officer, a lieutenant in logistics division of our empire. After seven days of war were done, I was the highest-ranking military officer still alive. I was the one who signaled the surrender of our forces and bowed my species' head to the apes. They were a young species. Their first fitful, furred-breasted ancestors crawled between tree roots when my species last survived the turning. When we had brought ourselves back into the stars, 
there was still the flicker of fire and a dry savannah of cracked and brutalized world, one of the great casualties of the turning. No species in the galaxy had expected their world to ever produce another civilization. And in a way, I suppose they were right. As my species reached its zenith, they swept out, leaping from world to world, their limes short and flickering things, but in great numbers. They were given many epitaphs, vermin, swarm, viruses, all representing a basic distaste of their kind amongst the great and the good species of the galaxy. They took it with good humor, the kind of good humor that is developed in a species constantly on the edge of violence, an instinctual politeness that avoids confrontation, because confrontation is so frequently lethal amongst them. It only highlighted the uncanniness of their kind. When they came for us, it was a war of conquest, no doubt inspired by the desperate need for more resources to feed a culture that could not stop growing. They had ridden through the stars like a scythe. Our fleets were destroyed in surprise attacks without declarations of war. They had no sense of decency when it came to war, and it served them well. Within a matter of a few years, we were trapped on our home planet, and the invasion began. It was not just the fact that they had attacked that left us shocked. It was the speed at which they had advanced. Another testament to their barbarism, they had no sense of restraint when it came to developing new technology. They did the unthinkable without considering the consequences. They certainly doomed us with their impulsive conquest. We fought as well as we could, but we had no chance. We had been prepared to fight an entirely different kind of war. No civilized species would have considered conquest, empires, and such a grand scale, not in the face of the turning. But then, nobody had ever told the humans about the turning. I certainly wouldn't. While becoming the face of our surrender, I was vilified. My old name struck from our language, those who shared it, reviling it, denying it. I was the lowest of the low. So, Sulasan, I have always wondered about your name, said the human ambassador, the military governor of our world, of our species. I was the supposed civilian head of government for what it was worth. My duties were primarily to absorb abuse from the political system of my home world for my complicity in our servitude, in the taxes that we paid and the levies we raised. What does it mean? I always hear the others of your species calling me that too. Is it an honorific of some sort, leader or diplomat? I gave a tight smile. The humans communicated almost entirely through words and large expressive gestures. Massive, obvious behavior to remove as much ambiguity as possible from what they meant. When they wanted to avoid a fight, it was obvious. When they were seeking one, even more so. Warning signs like the bright colors on a poisonous animal or the foul stench hanging around a noxious prey. Another example of their lack of refinement. My kind had evolved to be far more subtle. Not that any of that would matter. The first signs of the turning were already upon us. A scant few months remained before my kind would vanish beneath the sands of histories, buried like so many dead species before us. But I could see the human still wanted an answer. It means human, I said. It is not a compliment. It is, in point of fact, a deadly insult amongst my kind. Human, 
Scum, vermin, plague bearer, pariah, savage. You get the point. There was a moment of silence. The human looked askance to me. Everything all right. That's the most you've ever said about your species culture in one setting. I've been holding my tongue. I need no longer do so. This isn't a rebellion, is it? He asked, sighing. We've had to put down a score of those in the last month, and the timing has been, uh, difficult. The disappearing scout ships, I said. Everything galactic west of this world, I wager. You will not hear back from them. No one ever does. The human gave me a sharp look. You know what calls this. Of course, I said. And you kept it a secret. Of course, I roared. I regretted it almost instantly. The human's eyes narrowed fists clenching as he fought the urge to murder me where I stood. When the deadly moment passed and he regained control of his hindbrain, he shook his head. What did you expect? I asked. Your kind have slaughtered us. The only escape we have available was destroyed in your damned conquest because you took it for a shield generator. The Daedalus Project, the human said, frowning. We've been studying it for the past ten years straight but never figured out what it was. It walked like a shield generator. It quacked like one, but... The turning is coming and nothing survives it. We have legends about what it is, but that is all. It is a wavefront that passes constantly around the galaxy, slowly cycling across known space. What records survive its passing speak of impossible suffering, torture beyond words, the most nightmarish of fates. How distant... Distant ancestors created the escape for us. It projects a field of distorted time. The turning passes in a flash. The device cannot be recreated for more reasons than one. So, we are always aware that our empire must crumble for any of us to survive. Other species simply commit suicide, denying whatever forces behind the turning any satisfaction. Your world suffered that fate in a last sapient species choosing to destroy its home and itself to deny the turning whatever its goals are. The point is that you cannot stop it, and now cannot even avoid it. You do not have the time. We will die, but so are you. The human was silent for a moment. His face red, and he breathed hard. Primitive instinct still so close to the skin that he was looking for a rock to throw or a tree to climb. He regained his control. I nodded. I understand. I left and we did not talk again for several weeks. Ships landed, great transport ships, in the humans' fortress subcontinent, as our stocks of resources were seized and aggregated within warehouses. We watched with grim satisfaction. They could take it all. It wouldn't make any difference. When are you leaving? I asked, sitting in the military governor's office. Leaving? he asked, an eyebrow raised. The transport ships have been moving constantly. It has been clear that you are evacuating and stripping the world of what resources you can. It won't help you. No matter how you try and fortify your Earth, it will fall. We're not leaving, Cilician, said the human. Of course, I said, allowing amused derision to enter my voice. I suppose you do not believe me. I do, actually. And one of our scout ships came back. No ship, no outpost escapes the turning. Ah, well... He looked back down at the map of the planet, showing population centers. Glad no one told us about that. The least you could do is have the decency to allow us to embrace our deaths without your boots on our necks. You know you have a very low opinion of humans. I suppose I can't blame you after the war. We play for keeps. The human took out a small wooden pipe, 
filled it with poisonous weed that they apparently found amusing to burn and inhale. He lit it and took a deep breath from the noxious fumes before blowing them out in a foul cloud. But we didn't conquer all species to make you miserable or kill you. We did it because we knew there was something nasty coming, no matter how you've tried to hide it, and we all need to face it together. If your leaders have been willing too, but then I guess we were Cilician. Well done. I'm sure that as a sapient life is destroyed throughout the galaxy, we will thank you. My blood pounded in my ears, and for a moment I felt a strange and wholly unnatural desire to bite the human. I did not, but it thrilled me to feel the primitive impulse. I've seen how your kind treat each other. I've seen the very worst of humanity's excesses. There is a reason that you are Cilician. Yeah, we have our moments, don't we? We took another long, slow puff of the pipe. It's the pack instinct. If something's in your pack, you defend it against anything outside of the pack. If it's outside of your pack, well, anything goes. Fascinating, I said and sneered, turning away and leaving the office. The day came. It was obvious what it did. The human ships continued landing and taking off until the last minute. The shipments of materials continued to the fortress. I watched, detached and depressed. The sun began to dim, taking on an ominous blue haze. I sat and waited for the end to come, torturous, though it would surely be. Throughout the galaxy's history, countless ideas have been conjured up as to the nature of the turning. Nightmares about the event are common to every civilization that knows of it, but no one knows for sure. Some blame the great swarm of insectoid creatures, all gleaming carapaces and scything limbs, devouring the organic material of worlds. Others weave tales of mutated demonic creatures reminiscent of their own species, brought forth through the decadence and lack of faith in old gods. Still others blame spectral wraiths of energy and nebula gases, taking offense to simple organic life in their playground. A vast, sweeping tide of non-human machines, titanic artificial intelligences who loathe organic life, undead gods from other planes of existence come to wander through our reality like giants in a sandbox. A sweeping tide of madness, less entity, and more natural disaster, shredding sapiens slowly and torturously. I had always held a silent suspicion that the humans were responsible for the turning, or at least were its agents. Some savage species grown too fast, sweeping out, destroying civilization, collapsing under its own weight. I'd been wrong. Everyone was wrong. It was so much worse. As the nightmares descended upon us, there was a sound like tearing silk that filled the air. At first, I thought that it was some harmonic emerging from the screams of my kind, or some harbinger of the oncoming torment. Turned out, there was the humans. The gates tore open on every street, humans hustling out in thick shells designed to amplify their already barbaric strength and freakishly overcharged nervous systems. They met the nightmares with all the defiance that their ancestors had shown, screaming against the night with fire and flint in hand. A great deal more effectiveness, though. The battle stretched on, then the entirety of the Seven-Day War and its subsequent aftermath. Perhaps a few thousand humans had died in ambushes or vastly outnumbered. Each time, 
The retaliation had been draconian, devastating cities and killing hundreds for each one that died. The humans had not lost their retaliatory zeal. Hundreds of thousands died fighting the nightmares in the city alone. But they kept flooding out of their gates. Then after an indeterminable period, the nightmares fell back. Their own horrific ranks diminished. Well, the human said. Douglas, I recalled, was the name he'd always asked me to use with him. He stood against the wall, removing a helmet, slicked with gore, both human and nightmare. That went better than expected. They'll be back, I said, voice shaking. Oh, I look forward to it. This will happen across a thousand inhabited worlds, tens of thousands. You have lost countless numbers of your own people. Why? I asked, more accusation than was strictly justified, tinting my voice. Why? He asked, giving me a quizzical look. Because we protect our own Cilician. He slapped me once on the back, just gently enough to sting rather than shove my spine through my stomach. Welcome to the pack. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1325. Story number one. Unfit for human consumption, written by Zephyrlandantis. Salarum! Bera almost shouted at the senior xenoanthropologist. I did it! Her top set of ears wiggled enthusiastically. I found something the humans don't eat! Really? The senior Elenum researcher didn't even flinch an ear as he continued to study the screens in front of him. Very well, enlighten me, he sighed. Nests! Bera exclaimed happily. Nests? As in the place the avians lay eggs and rest their young? Indeed! These are made of collected pieces of foliage that are unfit for human consumption. She was jumping for joy at the prospect of an additional day off. Hmm, how about the contender, Barra? Zalara almost offered a smile. But, uh, look up, Swiftlet. Barra looked at her senior's back. Really? They, they eat nests? Yep. But, unfit for consumption, she murmured. After that, look up ethanol and capsaicin. Drex. End of story. Story number two. Slip space, written by For Use at Works. Selected excerpts from the Utlib Military Academy Historical Database. Military. Status declassified. Type lecture notes. Autoscribe system B38.3. Subject Humanity. Cross reference first contact FDL. The Enemicus Conflict. Speaker, adjunct professor, Viro Gaioris, colonel, United Terran Defense Fleet, retired. Class, please come to order, barked Colonel Grigals. You may all be wondering why we are here today, as you all have officially graduated and gotten your commission and security clearances as newly hatched baby officers. A murmur passed over the class, the leap version of a polite chuckle. Colonel Grigals paused and swept a dark brown human eyes across the auditorium at a cacophony of colors and patterns of Itlib exoskeletons that had been polished to a military sheen. For many of you, I am the only human that you have ever directly interacted with, he stated. Because of this fact, it is my privilege to provide you with the first classified briefing, he continued. While this material is more than fifty sole years old and rumors abound about it in the public sphere, it is practically an open secret. 
but it has been tradition ever since the end of the Inmicus conflict to tell the story to each graduation class of fleet officers, spoke Gregors in a tightly controlled clipped voice. So in the words of my grandfather, get comfortable children, I'm gonna tell you a story. The year was 2261 by the sole calendar. Ten years had passed since the first contact with the Italib confab. Our two species had gotten on really well. Humanity hadn't yet discovered slip space travel when the first Italib surveyor ship entered the Sol system. But we had left the cradle of Earth and had colonized Mars and multiple moons of our system's gas giant planets. We even had a couple of research stations in our Oort cloud. We had discovered life in our system, nothing sentient, but humanity knew that we weren't alone in the universe. Based on our technology level at the time, our new Atleep friends estimated that we would have discovered the basic principles of slip space in a decade or two, and would have been able to build crude drive systems within 15 years of that. So they didn't have much concern about upsetting our society by introducing themselves. By 2270, we had established contracts with the several Atleep companies to transport some of our first colonists to new worlds. It was on one of these first colony ships where the story really begins. The ECMF, Atleep Cofab Merchant Fleet, ultra-heavy transport, Lacus, was starting its life as a military transport. It was a bit smartened, but was robust, could move 250 standard cargo modules through slip space and sported 10 attached landers that could ferry pods to and from orbit. When she was decommissioned and demilitarized, she was purchased by one of her former captains, one Monotractus. He took the job of moving the first wave of colonists to Kepler-438b, now known as the Novan Domen. You may recall that this is one of the pirate attacks that set off the Imicus conflict. We covered that enough in class, though. Here's what you don't know. When that lightly disguised Inimicus frigate jumped from the outer fringes of the system into Novan Doman's gravity well, they came out of slip space in near-perfect position. The only thing that saved the Lacus from being outright destroyed in the first volley of torpedoes is that Captain Monitor still ran his bridge like it was in a confab military fleet. As soon as the jumped signatures were detected, the crew activated Lacus's substantial shields. Demilitarization may have removed all but the basic point defense turrets from the ship, but her shields, while old, were strong and had been well maintained over the years. Those shields took four direct torpedoes before they faltered and ate away 90% of the energy of the fifth. That is where it seemed that the Lacus's luck ran out. The fifth torpedo hit the bridge. On this day, Captain Manitritus, as he was done many times before on the 17th month's trip to Novendomen, had let one of the human children's school classes tour the bridge. This was a special occasion as the children could watch and listen as the ferry shuttle containers down to their soon-to-be new home. The torpedo killed ten of the 14 third-grade children, their teacher, and all of the bridge crew except the navigator. Bulkheads had closed and emergency structural fields sealed the atmosphere of the bridge. But it was chaos. The injured children wailed as alarms blared and the fire suppression systems extinguished the flames and evacuated acrid smoke from the chamber. The Eclip navigator, Lieutenant Samantavis Querpeta, was fatally wounded but kept calm. She activated the emergency escape protocol with a voice command to her console. But nothing happened. 
Now you see the dilemma. While the ship had fully functional and charged slip drive, a captain who followed standard military protocol and had emergency escape calls loaded whenever in real space, a valiant navigator trying her best to do her duty, the Lacus had no helmsman. That is one quirk of slip space that keeps all of us bags of fluid and meat on our ships versus handling all over to computers. A slip-capable ship needs a sentient being to direct its travel, even... To this day, we don't know why. Just the act of a sentient being activating a drive somehow gives the ship authority to surgically slice a tiny tear into space-time and allows it to emerge across the galaxy. Not even the most advanced AI can do it. Every AI test, every remote activation of a drive that has been attempted has resulted in a lost ship or the vessel being converted into subatomic particles and energy. The only other sentience on that bridge were scared, wounded, human children. Semitivis Querperta called them in a calm and soothing voice. Children, children, listen to me. We have to run away. We have to run now. We can do it, but I need your help. Who can get into the big red chair? Children, I, I know you're scared, but I need you to help us run away. I need you to help save your mommies and daddies and brothers and sisters. The human flight-or-fight response is interesting. Most untrained humans will flee a dangerous situation. Some will freeze up. But some without any training to guide them will turn icy cold. We were lucky that one such little boy was on that bridge. His name was Tevian. He was nine years old. He had sandy brown hair and was wearing tiny coveralls made by his mother to resemble a human fleet crewman's clothing. He had visited the bridge every time he could, and the engine room, and the recycler rooms, and everywhere else outside the passenger modules that he could. Where some kids could name every dinosaur, he could name dozens of fleet ships by sight. He knew what all of the controls did. With a jagged metal shard embedded in his small femur, he dragged himself up into the helmsman's chair and slapped the small hand down on the control panel, leaving a bloody print. This itself is not a significant event. Humans have been piloting slip-capable ships for years at this point, under the Yipcleave's watchful eyes. Exquisitely trained expert human adults. Humans trained to know that slip space was weird, but had rules. You can only jump so far. You can only jump so fast. Slip space seems is fluid, though. Sometimes you would emerge from a long jump to find that five days had passed and you had gone 15 light years. Sometimes you would find that 20 days had passed and that you had gone and traveled seven light years. Slip space was moody. Only short, almost line of sight jumps could be made with accuracy and precision. At best, you would aim for the general vicinity of a solar system during a long jump and then micro-jump and real space transit the remaining distance. When scared, brave little Tavian hit the panel. They jumped. Only they didn't just jump. They jumped home. They jumped 473 light years in an instant. They jumped into Earth's gravity while only 2,000 kilometers above the surface of the planet. They jumped directly over Tavian's former house in the city called Huntsville. That is what won the Inimicus conflict. 
cemented the bond between Eclipse and humans and brought us to become the dominant power in this corner of the galaxy. As we don't have child soldiers, you're probably wondering why every ship in both military and civilian fleets has an adult human pilot. It turns out that our species has a superpower. We may not be the strongest, fastest, or smartest species in the galaxy, but we can do one thing better than anyone else. That thing is self-delusion. For the whole history of our species, we've built realities in our mind that didn't fit the real-world data. We see patterns where there are none. We believe in possible things just because that is how we would prefer that the universe should be. It has both plagued our species and helped us hold on to survive in possible situations. Now, our stubborn ability to deny reality has been harnessed to open the universe up to us both. We can travel between star systems in an instant now, because of one disciplined Adleep captain, one stalwart Adleep helmsman, and one frightened but brave little human boy who wanted more than anything to go home. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1326 Story number one. The Human Delusion, written by Nerd Overalis. Beneath a hemisphere of transparent crystalline, the professor shuffled his notes. Z didn't need to consult the data slices anymore, having been on station for many orbits, but adjusting them was a part of the performance. Around them, the last of the students were settling down as their varied seats, perches, and pools. Another generation of students at the Academy for Conscious Lives in the Universe. Did humans ever exist? The professor asked in the core language forms, pulsing air from the verbrists, regularing light from the spectrists, and oscillating this mantle bladder for electrists. The starry sky outside flashed as the Academy's particle accelerator surged with tachyons in increasingly high-powered collisions. Despite the flickering nonsense, even the spectrists were wrapped as they began to teach galactic history. Search deep enough in the annals of each sentient species, and you will find the characters that match the proposed traits of humanity. Carbon-based, oxygen-processing endoskeleton bipeds with high technology and many tannins. They are a diverse caste, diplomats and generals, scientists and prophets, philosophers and tricksters. Indeed, some scholars, Z was sure to emphasize the purple in that word, claim that humanity visited all sentient worlds simultaneously, close to one galactic cycle ago, pointing us towards the stars once we were ready for peaceful galactic coexistence. To continue in my class, you must accept this for what it is. Mythology, and nothing more, a myth perpetrated through charitable interpretations of uncertain histories and shoddy evidence. Will you be serious students of history, or will you choose to believe in humans? After the theatrical pause, Z resumed the lecture. Good, now let me take you back to the birth of the... With all due respect, sir, I believe in humans. One of the students was standing with upper limb raised. Academy admissions had always succeeded in screening out such humanist kooks, but Z supposed one would get through eventually. The professor glanced at his notes for a moment before speaking with an orange tone. Well then, why don't you enlighten us with your beloved nesting tails? Thank you, sir. The creature bobbed its head. 
Grey plumage wobbling with its movement. Less than 17 galactic cycles ago, life emerged on a planet that would be known as Earth. After many cycles, a sentient species evolved, and they were lucky enough to develop a culture with just the right balance of ingenuity and empathy. The professor nodded along. They were thrown by the student's confidence, but these were details of a familiar part to human myth. Z knew the student would describe humanity looking out at an immense void between the stars, lonely and determined. The mythical beings would use their mighty intellect to bend the fabric of reality, distorting time itself, allowing them to interact with the galaxy of species whenever they needed. And so humans shepherded the cultures of the galaxy, ensuring that they would be able to cooperate when the time came. Humanity prevented vast imbalances of power that might lead to exploitation, and when the stage was set, we gave each species insight to travel between the stars. We have no wish to dominate. We wanted you to develop your own culture, and so we've been absent for a cycle. But now we have returned. This was a new twist the professor hadn't heard before, but this interior antennae tingled as he realized the counter. You claim to be human. Why don't you prove it? Show us your mighty powers over time and space. Certainly, Professor. The biped smiled, pointing towards upwards, where the particle collider flickered, a clear message over and over. Humanity has returned! Humanity has returned! The Professor's pleopods gave way and he fell to the floor as the class cheered, flickered, and oscillated. That student's name, Albert Einstein. End of story. Story number two. Monsters and Heroes, written by Algy Father Anthracite. Kraliak stood at the front porch of his friend William's house. He had a plain white bedsheet with two holes cut in it for eye stalks draped over himself. He had been informed by some friends that this was the traditional outfit for extraterrestrials during the festival of Halloween. Kraliak was fascinated by the strange customs of humans. They had dozens of customs for play-acting as monsters of their culture and fictions. From the horror movies he had grown to like, despite going into full fear response on his first viewing, to the games where they got pretend to be anyone they pleased to the act of dressing as monsters and heroes. Krylik had never before encountered a species so insisted on exploring so many facets of their personalities. William came out to the porch carrying a large plastic dish decorated with prints of flying nocturnal mammals filled with small individually wrapped candies. He handed Krylik a can of Diet Cola and sat in one of the chairs on the porch setting the bowl on the small table. Have a seat, Krylik. Get comfy, he said, nestling back a little into the cushions. Friend William, I'm too excited to sit. There is so much pageantry, so much activity, so many costumes. I wish to know what they all are. Krylik stuck his forelimbs out from under the sheet and showed William a pen and paper that he had started to take notes on. William laughed. <laughs> sure thing, bud. Oh, looks like we have some customers. Three small children in costumes approached, each holding a plastic bag with cartoon representations of classic moving monsters. Krylik recognized Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, and the Wolfman. 
The children were dressed up as a popular animated princess and two heroes from modern action movies. William held the bowl out to Krylik, who selected the small items for each child and waited to hear the correct phrase. Giddy with excitement at again participating in the human holiday. Twinkle tweet, chorused the children. What lovely costumes. I shall provide treats, so please do not play tricks on me, Krylik responded. He placed a small handful of goodies in each bag and then said, May I ask who you are dressed as? He pulled out a pen and paper. I am Princess Lenaria. I'm Deflatimos. He's the best, said the one boy. I'm Ultra Boy. He's way better than Deflatimos, said the other. Uh-uh, said the first boy. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing. Please continue to be safe and enjoy your night, Rylix said. His eye stalks bobbed with mirth as the boys painfully pushed each other. Thanks, all the children said as they headed back down the front walkway. Krylik saw another group approaching and reloaded on candy. So many data points. Krylik sat in the chair, sipping his beverage as he started a preliminary tally on his costume data. Friend William, I am intrigued. I see a great many human children dressed as heroes and the like, as opposed to monsters, though there were still a great many of those as well. Why is this? I thought this was a festival of fright. Well, Gryx, not everyone wants to be a monster. Or look into the dark side of human nature. Some people want to know what it's like to be a hero, or a princess, or even a robot or an alien. Humans love to pretend. They like to be moms and dads, cats and dogs, monsters and heroes, cops and robbers. Humans love to see things from many different angles. I can never know what it is like to be you, Krylik, but I can imagine what an alien would think of life on Earth, just like I can think of what it would be to fly or be invisible. Krylik thought of that for a time that he had played the role-playing game with his friends, and how they had banded together to save the city from invading monsters. Of how in every horror movie there was a human who fought back against the monsters and won. He thought of the earthquake, when he had helped in relief efforts, along with countless humans who worked for days to help those in need. He thought of people who had befriended him, cared for him, welcomed him into their lives and homes. He thought of how, on a night when everyone was allowed to be whatever they wanted, there were so many who dressed as heroes, as well as monsters. Of how even when they were supposed to play at monsters, they still chose to be heroes. He thought of what truly strange and marvelous creatures they were, so fascinated with their own darkness, but almost dismissive of their kindness and strength. How they struggled so hard to know who they were, both as individuals and as a people. I think, friend William, that if I were a monster, Earth is the last place that I would ever, ever want to be. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1327 Story number one Mechanical Gods Written by Nora Dnea Toast Final audio log of redacted Recovered Human Observation Year 6056 My kind are spiritual. We recognize gods as facts. They guide our every waking moment. From when our souls are given bodies to the moment our souls fly free. They are our creators, and we are their subjects. There is no other way around to understand our world. Humans had their gods also, some bore a resemblance to ours. 
some did not. We considered their kind primitive, and their gods more so. Yet they sparked our curiosity, so we made no contact unobserved, as our faith dictated. Eventually, the humans left their birth world and took to the stars. They established colonies on planets we thought uninhabitable. The colonies lost contact with each other in some form of disaster. There was a discussion amongst my kind as to whether they would survive. I prayed to my gods that they would. They did, of course, or I would not have a story to tell. We observed, over time, striking divergencies amongst those human colonies cut off from each other. Many remained on the traditional path, worshipping the sky and the stars as they always had. Others turned inwards and worshipped the worlds that sustained them. We considered this strange, but did not interfere. Then we found worship that caused uproar amongst my kind, the worship of mechanical gods. One human colony eschewed tradition entirely. Their world suffered many disasters which eviscerated their numbers and threatened their existence. Despite this, they rebelled. They forced the planet to kneel at their feet as they configured the skies and the seas to serve their needs. They were warlike too. Factions battled over resources, brutal wars at terrible cost, then coalesced under a single banner once the crisis was resolved. We watched in fear as these humans reached the stars once more. Eventually, they abandoned their crucible world for a civilization in the stars. Over time, their ships and their weapons became their gods. These humans worshipped only the shrine of their own creations. We considered interference and decreed their blasphemy. But our gods forbade us from such an act. We could do nothing but watch. We assumed the worst. We thought they would find other colonies, then destroy them in the name of their mechanical gods. Yet, to our surprise, they did not. They found another colony, of course, but there was little bloodshed. Those that worshipped their mechanical gods saw brethren, not enemies. Perhaps they had grown tired of war, but we thought such a thing impossible. We concluded that the discovered colony was deemed useless to the mechanical god's cause. Despite this, the divine ships never left, and over time the two colonies assimilated. It was not long before other colonies were rediscovered, creating a further mixture of faiths. Humanity, for the first time in a millennia, became unified under one banner once more. Human gods are now unrecognizable from those of their birth world, the pantheon is vast. The humans worship the sea, the sky, and everything in between. Yet the influence of a single warlike colony was incredible. Their gods are traditional, yes, but each of them was given life and soul by humans. They and their gods are our equal power. And through these gods, the humans reshaped their reality as they saw fit. They took to the stars on a journey of discovery, then prospered unlike any species I had ever observed. Mechanical gods were only the beginning. Each human is now a god unto themselves. I have not told my brethren, but I plan to break the foul silent observation. I wish to see what the humans would think of me. I wish to see what they can make of my kind's technology. My gods will not forgive me for such an act. Yet, I am no longer sure of their power. Somewhere, amidst my millennia of observation, 
I found the strength to shape my own story by my own wombs. Perhaps I, too, have been changed by the mechanical gods. Audio log retrieval note. The whereabouts of redacted are unknown. Two rotations after this log was created, all human colonies became unobservable. We must assume that our position is compromised. Well, the humans forgive us for not helping them sooner. End of story. Story number two. Unhuman Constructions, written by LG Father Anthracite. From the GLQ Construction Analysis Report, Soul 3 Humans. Excerpt from Chapter 1, An Overview. Unlike many species of the Galactic Legal Quorum, human construction techniques differ from most of the member races in fairly significant ways. There are several reasons for this, ranging from geologic to atmospheric, and even in places based on natural resources and historic events. One of the strangest issues with human construction techniques is that there are different building codes that vary not only by region, but also by purpose. A human storage facility may require only minimal infrastructure in terms of utilities such as sewerage and electrical service, but require a much more dense and thick foundation to support heavy moving equipment and static loads of stored materials. Likewise, a dwelling unit requires a more robust integration of utilities, but not need a foundation that can support several thousand kilograms per square meter. Even the utility loadouts for dwellings is not standardized, as the regional environmental conditions and infrastructure negates any sort of commonality between buildings. For example, while those living in fairly temperate regions have no need for such things as air conditioning or heating, footnote 1, those who live in places with more extreme temperature swings throughout the orbital cycle, footnote 2, may require one or both services in their dwellings. In some places on Earth, which are heavily populated, the temperature swing in a single solar orbit can vary 50.5 degrees centigrade and nearly 12 degrees centigrade in a single rotation. Environmental concerns do not stop with merely creating a comfortable living temperature for humans. Due to the geological instability of some regions of the planet, there are supplemental steps required to ensure safe construction. Earthquake straps are used in the construction of buildings to reinforce junction points to minimize collapsing during tectonic slip or shear events. It should be noted that humans consider such events mostly inconsequential, despite occasionally suffering massive damage and numerous deaths due to earthquakes. In other areas, buildings are constructed on stilts, long pylons driven into the ground, to raise the structure off of the ground. This is due to humans populating floodplains. The surrounding area frequently gets overloaded with water from rivers and can be submerged for days or weeks. Again, this is considered mostly inconsequential, unless particularly severe. They also build on stilts near arctic conditions to prevent the permafrost from melting beneath their homes, causing structural damage. Yes, they live in arctic conditions as well. Homes on Earth are designed to deal with conditions including additional environmental issues such as hurricanes or typhoon, wildfire, desert or drought, and more. Additionally, buildings may be designed and built underground or even underwater, despite humans normally breathing gaseous atmosphere. While most species in the GLQ are not nearly as cavalier about environment that they dwell in, the construction methods used are fairly similar mostly consisting of modular panel construction, although there are exceptions, 
like the tunnel-dwelling Zichki and the Kempili, who dig underground. Human construction, however, is something altogether different. Human buildings are mostly stick-built, although prefabricated buildings are not unheard of. A stick-built building is eerily biological in nature, although this is not immediately evident in the final product. First, a foundation of concrete, footnote 3, is poured. Once cured, a skeleton is built using timber and or metal. A circulatory system of pipes is fitted to deliver and remove water and waste. Pulmonary ducts to deliver fresh air and temperature control are installed. Organ-like appliances are installed, including water heaters, valves and pumps, furnaces and air conditioners. Finally, all the systems are tied together to an artificial nervous system which monitors air temp and automatically controls the environment inside the building. The whole dwelling is then given a subcutaneous layer of wood and plastic sheeting. The outside skin may consist of stone, brick, plaster, or wood. Footnote 4. The inside is almost always wood, concrete, or gypsum board. Footnote 3. Considering the mimicry of biological construction, as well as human tendency to anthropomorphize, footnotes 5, so much, homes tend to be fairly important to humans. This old superstition of naming homes, and even in some extreme cases, thankfully, far back in history, of sacrificing a life to give a dwelling a spirit or a soul is not completely unsurprising either. It should be noted that although the scale may change, even human megastructures are typically built in this fashion, from a single family dwelling to massive skyscrapers of earth. The vast majority are both this fashion. Footnote 1. See Chapter 12 of this report, HVAC, what necessitates it and how it is achieved. Footnote 2. CGLQ Environmental Analysis Report, Chapter 2, Orbital Tilt and the Effects on Weather. Footnote 3. See Chapter 3 of this report, Construction Materials and Their Physical Properties. Footnote 4. See Chapter 4 of this report, Architecture and Design Considerations. Footnote 5. See Chapter 32 of this report, Glossary. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1328. Story number one. Flamethrower. Written by Hope Dater Dam. Screams. The howling screams of my comrades overwhelmed my senses. The smell of burned flesh and charred bone filled my nose. My organs filled with acrid smoke. An amber lash of searing flame. I was afraid. We're all made out of meat. The world... I gone black. The air burned around me and my skin nearly boiled. I broke down then, pacified to a curled-up trembling vim in the corner of the bunker on Piom. I trembled in fear. Fear of death and fear of devastation. I feared that I would not come out alive. No. Feared there would be nothing left of me to be buried. The crackling of the flames surrounded me as the screams of my friends, my comrades, the people I trained with, I spent time with, subsided like a passing wind. Our armor did nothing to stop the scorching flames. Our shields did not stop the hellfire that came our way. And nothing stopped the humans' advance. I did not know how long I lasted in that state of fear and misery, but I raised my head from my knees and came face to face with the destruction and devastation the humans had caused with their weapons. Soldiers, friends, pulverized. Every single person in that bunker vaporized. Except me. 
The black smog painted my face and body as I slowly got up from the floor, one hand against the wall. I was speechless. What do you even do when you're faced with that horrifying scene? The screams will haunt me forever. The crackling of flames, the smell of ash. I can't enjoy the warm blanket fire provided ever again after that. Moments later, the humans blasted open the bunker door. The lights flooded through into the dark interior. I remember screaming and raised my hands in response to the explosion. The way the humans used to signify surrender and to convey that one does not have weapons on hand. The human soldiers quickly swept the bunker and found me in the corner with my hands up. They bore filtered full-face helmets, unlike us, that required room due to our bulbous eyes. They approached me with their weapons aimed up. I heard them talking, but I didn't understand them. I just thought that they were asking their officer whether to kill me or spare me. I was brought out of the bunker and into the sunlight forcefully, with the end of the barrel against the back of my head. Then we got out from the trench. I was taken into a POW camp until the end of the war. After that, I could truly find out what I experienced in that bunker that day and what caused it. The humans call it a flamethrower, quite a literal translation. It is a weapon that spews out flammable concoction before being ignited. A horrifying weapon, burning alive enemies at the press of a trigger. Several years after my discovery, I traveled to a notorious human fortress planet to see for myself how this weapon works and functions. I also discovered that the planet has been transformed into live weapons demonstration presented to an audience during peacetime. How the humans can digest the demonstration of horrible weapons as entertainment, I do not understand. I was paired up with Sergeant Algebov Michael. I struggled to say his name even to this day. He explained to me that the usage of the flamethrower in wars was outlawed in recent human history. Even humans are afraid of this weapon that they have created. I was rather happy to hear when Algebov complained that our body armor proved difficult to deal with the kinetic weaponry. But he further explained that the reason prompted for the usage of the flamethrower as a weapon once more. It was the Russians that first proposed the usage of the flamethrower. His home commissariat. He looked happy when he told me that. After his explanation, he took me out to the range where they give a live demonstration of the weapons of one's choice. One of his comrades came over, and in their hands lay a large tank that you connected from the top to the back end of a nozzle. He strapped a flamethrower on his back before taking the handle of the nozzle, walking up to a barrier. He aimed the nozzle up and pressed the trigger. A thick liquid shot out from the tip of the nozzle. Algebov pressed the button on the side. In the blink of an eye, as the humans say, the liquid concoction let up in a spectacular display, and its range is not to be underestimated. Algebov stopped firing after that, but I witnessed the liquid mix is still burning on the ground. I chuckled with almost a euphoric expression. He does like his monstrous weapon. I quote, That thing will burn for the next eight hours. Eight hours. I was speechless then, as I stared at the burning liquid downrange. Algebob shook my shoulder, and I reverted my attention to him. He described me, then, like a deer in the headlights. End of story. Story number two. Where is everyone? Written by T. Deegan. When humanity first looked to the stars, we wondered what might lurk between them. Was it friendly? 
or would it be our death? At first, we looked at our neighbors, Venus and Mars. We dreamt of the civilizations hidden right next to us. As we understood more, we found no one to be there. But there were more stars out there. Alpha Centauri, just one star over, might be home to others. And if not there, one of the other uncountable stars surely would have equals. But as we theorized more, we wondered if there was so much out there, why had nothing found us already? Why had we not seen them? Were others so rare? Were we the first? Or did something vanish them before we could find them? When we ventured further out into the solar system, we found plentiful life on the moons of Saturn and Jupiter, hidden beneath the ice. And on Mars and Venus, the remains of long-dead, but still once-living, organisms. So, if there were so many independent versions of life right here in our neighborhood, why was there no life like us out there? And we ventured further, exploring solar system after solar system, starting with our neighbor, Alpha Centauri, to the furthest reaches of our galaxy. In our fragile generationships over millions of years, we colonized the Milky Way. As we found life, primitive bacteria on every piece of rock with liquid water, and many without, the occasional complex ones too, and the rare, tiny, multicellular life. But nothing which could equal us. And as our science progressed, we finally broke the shackles of light imposed upon us and connected to the desperate tribes strewn across the galaxy. With newfound vigor, we reached to the stars again, exploring and colonizing galaxy after galaxy. First Andromeda, then every galaxy we could reach, until we couldn't call the cluster ours. But we found nothing new, just more of the same primitive life that we already knew. And we went further, cluster after cluster, until we were everything in the Linikia supercluster. And yet, we were alone. No traces of the ones before us. No one on the way to reach us. So further, we explored. And as the stars dim, we made our own to guide us in our search. When we finally reached the end of the known universe, we were still alone. So we went further past the known universe, into the unreachable. Surely, somewhere, we would find equals. Long abandoned were the visions of civilizations which could guide us, help us understand the universe. Now, we were searching for others that we could guide instead. But after exploring and colonizing both the known and unknown universe, we were still alone. Not discouraged by this, we decided it was time to control time not letting it control us anymore. And we searched from the earliest beginnings of the universe until the heat death was long over, and we found no one but us. So, if our universe wasn't enough to greet two of us, we would simply go to another one and find others there. And we went to universe after universe, some similar to ours, others so utterly different, almost incomprehensible, and many in between. And we found wonders, life of the strangest varieties, and we found no equals. After searching the known and the unknown, the past, the present, and the future, the here, 
and the everywhere else, we had found nothing. But when we looked back, we saw the wonders we made, galaxies of the strangest designs, new universes when our old ones died, turning back the clock on those we didn't want to abandon. And we saw the uncountable billions of species humanity had split into, our friends that we had taken with us, now made our equals, our machines, long more than simple automatons, now equal beings in their own right. And we thought, maybe, just maybe, we were enough. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1329. Story double one. Elven magic, dwarven steel, and human blood. Written by Whiskey Lullaby. I am often asked how we won the Great War. How we faced down endless hordes of our mutated, maddened brethren, the living dead, and monsters from beyond our understanding. The answer is frustratingly simple. Elven magic, dwarven steel, and endless lakes of human blood. Of the many races of the Alliance, only humanity had the numbers to hold the line, and as much as it burns me to admit it, they had more courage than any one of my elven soldiers, and more of a stubborn streak than the greyest of grey-bearded dwarves. Where the rest of us focused on building great fortresses, and honing our magic, or building great war machines, and crafting rune weapons, other humans simply dug into the ground like ants. They spread barbed wire, built hasty bunkers and defensive lines, and filled them with rifles and machine guns. Behind their lines, they set up great cannons, some of which were brought, borrowed, or outright stolen from dwarven armories. My compatriots looked down on them. With our great bows and powerful magic, they thought our troops were invincible. The first assault against the Dark Keep taught them differently. Our knights were shattered by twisted reflections of dwarven runecasters. Our mages were corrupted from the inside out by blood rituals of fallen priests. And our troops were driven back by tides of flesh as the dead and the mad swarmed into them. Lord Alforcia fell on his own sword after reading the reported casualties. The dwarves and their machines did no better. The great land ships outpaced their infantry and were swarmed, boarded, and turned against their former comrades. Three whole clans lost their sons that day. The Feyfolk and the Beastmen were driven out of the kingdoms after only a few days, millions streaming past the defensive lines of the humans. We were furious at first, demanding that they send out an attacking force. Their supreme commander at the time, Frederick von Andolphus simply shook his head. We are heavily outnumbered, and there is far too much ground on the plains and hills to adequately cover. We'd overextend, and one good punch would leave our rear undefended, our front line encircled, and open a gaping hole straight to our hearts. If you would simply build your defense and several fallbacks in line with our own, we could not only support one another, but bottleneck the enemy. Our navies and the skills of the merfolk could easily keep the enemy from making any significant naval landings due to the terrain. We could turn half the continent into a fortress and bleed the enemy forces dry just from holding the Shatterspine Mountains 
and the gaps between them. Thus was born Warplan Hitchcock. There was much arguing, months of last time, with more and more surrounding nations warning. I was skeptical of the humans' plans, and, to my shame, I dragged my feet. It wasn't until the enemy had reached the humans' first line that I realized how effective it was, and how costly to his own people. I arrived with reinforcements at the tail end of the fighting. There were mountains, corpses, tired-looking human troops pouring oil over them and setting them alight. They were filthy, their trenches filled with mud from the blood. I remember the chill that went down my spine when I saw that everything before the trenches was tattered and ruined. The moonscape of shell holes and ruined bodies, the trembling, didn't start until I saw that things had gotten so desperate that they'd shelled their own trench. They'd paid a steep price for their victory, around 120,000 across the whole line. But they'd killed almost ten times that number. The plan was finally approved the day after. Excerpt from the War Diaries of Knight Commander Sindarian, Hero of Whitevale. End of story. Story number two. Self-reliance, written by LG Father Anthracite. When the Askama built their space elevator, they reached out to the Lefren for aid. The Lefren are renowned for their design and engineering ability. When the Lefren built their Grand Central Space Station, they contacted the Brenth to help design the life support and waste recycling systems, as the Brenth were the experts in such critical systems. In the collective, a great many species were often called upon to provide their technical expertise, which is not to say there were no Lefren life support specialists or Askama engineers, but when you have an expert, you ask them, it was the way of things in the collective. Everyone supported each other, providing assistance and expertise to each other. Making a name for your species as specialists and something was fairly common amongst collective member species. Humans were always there, performing as members of the collective. They were laborers, technicians, system assemblers. Like many species, humans had a wide range of abilities and often shared their efforts with others. For a long time, no one noticed. No one noticed because people worked with humans all the time. Humans were always around. They were, as a species, well integrated into the collective. A thriving, vibrant culture full of people who were willing and able to do great many jobs. But one day, a Grebnel ambassador, in the midst of writing a speech to the Collective Council, tried to remember a single human engineering project that used a foreign expert. But he couldn't think of any. He sent an aide to research it. And surely there had been some example that he could put into his remarks. His aide came back 42 cycles later and reported that there was no known instance of humans seeking outside help for any of their massive infrastructure projects. To be sure, they had hired from all collector species for all manner of labor, administration, and support. But no consultations with the Lefren regarding their engineering. No asking the Wymyuk specialists regarding terraforming a new colony planet. Aside from checking to make sure that the designs met health and safety regulations for all collective species, they had never collaborated with anyone. 
In the century-long history of the collective, humanity was the only species to never have asked for assistance with designing, building, or implementing anything. The Grebnel ambassador scheduled a meeting with his human counterpart. After the formalities were observed, he asked if there was a reason that the humans had never done an outside consultation on one of their projects. The human ambassador, to his credit, honestly thought that there must be some sort of error. He sent one of his aides to retrieve any data on human-alien collaboration projects. The aide returned, empty-handed. The ambassador apologized to the Grebnel ambassador and said that he was talk to his government and see why no such action had happened before. After several months of chasing down leads and scheduling FTL comms, meetings, and emails, many back and forth with government officials, he had an answer. Humans were late to join the Collective. They had already started to build their empire when they encountered the Collective. Humans were well into their third inhabited system, with several terraform planets and several space elevators. Massive space stations hung in the orbit of all three systems. Humans were, in a strange twist for such a pervasive species, unaccustomed to seeking help, because they had never gotten it from anyone before. They had, as a species, achieved a level of colonization that no other races had, unaided. In the centuries that they had spent building new worlds to live on and populating new systems, they had built massive stores of technical skills and know-how. They had designed and redesigned redundant, self-sufficient systems. After joining the Collective, they continued to develop those skills and add to the know-how. When they needed to build a space elevator or construct a space station, they just did it. To their way of thinking, there was no problem that needed solving, no question they could not answer. To them, it was just another day, another job, another paycheck. The human ambassador scheduled a new meeting with the Grebnel ambassador. After the niceties were out of the way, the human ambassador started to explain all of this to the Grebnel ambassador. I assure you, Ambassador Hambra, it is not any sort of malicious intent on our part. I suppose after so many centuries of taking care of everything on our own, it just never occurred to us to ask for help. I suppose when it comes down to it, it's just us being stubbornly set in our ways. But for the sake of diplomacy, let's say that it's our spirit of self-reliance. Men of Story Tales from Outer Space 1330 Story Double One The Last War Written by Echoing Cascade The first attack had been monstrous. The crystal ship had appeared above the Australian continent on what was otherwise a normal day. There was no message of any kind, no indication of the imminent arrival. It simply materialized out of thin air. Then it dropped what looked like snowflakes made of light which spread throughout the world. It was beautiful, mesmerizing. That is until they started to make contact with the population. The sick, the dying, the old, the infirm, children and their parents disappearing out of existence. There were no screams, no remains, nothing. Those left received a single thought in the native tongue. Fight! The leaders of the world lost no time. The fury of Earth was going to be felt by these invaders. Old allies, better rivals, and eternal enemies alike, united for the first time in human history. Their purpose was simple. Kill these aliens! 
or die trying. At first, they tried conventional weapons on the Aiden ship. Every fighter that could take to the sky, every seaworthy ship, and any kind of armament launched an all-out attack on the aliens to no avail. It was after the first nuclear strikes that the ship dropped soldiers. Translucid spiders are the size of a horse. They possessed a poison that would dematerialize its victim in a matter of seconds. They destroyed the majority of the armies of the world in the first six months of the war. Sarpedon Ardina was looking at the ragtag team that he would lead in what would be humanity's final battle. If everything goes as planned. He had been a master sergeant before the invasion, for a country that no longer existed. By now, he was known by what was left of humanity as the General. On the day the spiders began their attack, he had led his soldiers and anyone else he could find into bunkers originally created to house heads of state. From there, he organized what was left of the armies of Earth into a resistance. In the following year, they had made some headway, finding out how to actually destroy the spiders and counteract their poison. Bullets dealt little to no damage to the creature, but bladed weapons would cut them as if they were flesh and bone. Their poison could be stopped by injecting near-fatal amounts of adrenaline into the victim. Even so, victory was not an option. Since the invasion had begun, the artificial snow had not stopped, and as a result, no children had been born and the dead no matter how they died, disappeared like they never existed. Humanity was a race without a future, so they chose the only path left for them. Vengeance. They had found several nuclear missile caches that politicians insisted before the invasion didn't exist. They would arm them all and launch them, not against the alien ship, but against every landmass still untouched by radiation if the aliens wanted the planet, they could have it. Sarpedon led the team into what was formerly Russian territory. Every soldier in his squad was armed with a spear, axe, sword, or machete, and each carried a syringe with enough adrenaline to survive a single spider bite. The battle was fierce. The spiders seemingly knew what they were trying to do and wouldn't have it. Nonetheless, they pushed on and out of sheer determination, spite, and hatred, they succeeded. The last thing Sarpedon saw before the blinding flash of the missile leaving the silos, he lifted a middle finger and pointed it in the general direction where the alien ship should be, and was then consumed by flames. Sarpedon then opened his eyes. He was in his office again. He looked around to faces of the people who had been with him when the invasion started. Some of them long dead, and all of them just as confused to be alive as he was. Sarpedon, what the f- Before he could finish the sentence, a telepathic broadcast was sent to all of humanity. A pompous-looking spider, dressed with jewels and fine silks, appeared to all. We are the Slanesh. We have come to conquer you. The spider creature bowed its head before continuing. The current message is being sent only to those who participated in the war. Do not worry for your meek and young. Sarpedon was in the same state as the rest of humanity, furious and confused, but as the creature continued speaking, the fury became anger. The anger, annoyance, and the annoyance, understanding. 
The Slamesh were a warrior species. They once tried to conquer all known sentient beings in the universe. They had almost succeeded when a coalition rose up to oppose them. Trillions had died, countless worlds reduced to space debris, and many species killed to the last. They felt too many resources were lost in this type of conquest, so they chose a new method. War by simulation. They showed their prey the foolishness of resisting and how powerless they were to stop them. The psychic message ended with the Slamesh warlord telling humanity that the war simulation would restart if they did not surrender. After the broadcast, Serpentin looked at the people in his office. Linda Trevor, his secretary, he never liked her. To be honest, he always felt she only got the job because of her father. Last time he had seen her alive was when she jumped on top of a spider to stab it with a pen on the early stages of the invasion, long before they knew how to survive a bite. Donovan Brown, an old friend. He had joined the army with him. He died, making sure that he had time to enter the launch codes for the Russian vicinity. Miriam Collins, a field medic, who became his wife, who he vowed he would formally marry and grow old with now that he could. The phone in his office rang nearly non-stop for the next hour. Every world leader, every top-ranking military officer tried to contact him with a single query. What are your orders, General? The Slamesh warlord was awaiting humanity's unconditional surrender. No species chose to oppose them after the final wall simulation. The system was perfect. After all, why destroy them when they could simply break their spruits at little to no cost? He was contacted by the human they called the General. He had gained great notoriety during the simulation and now spoke for them. He expected bravado, maybe insult too, but ultimately a call for mercy and their surrender. Yet instead, You ask us to surrender or you will force us to fight this war again. Now that we know there are no consequences, and you think this scares us? <laughs> Get your shitty holodeck ready, Spock. Let's make this the best two out of three. The Slamesh ultimately left after best four out of seven. You don't try and conquer the insane. You best just avoid them and move on. End of story. Story number two. It is done, written by Rednall 97 It was done. It was over. The last human was dead. It took thousands of years, billions of planets, and uncountable amounts of money, ships, and lives. When it was done, the details and how exactly the war started were long lost. All that is known is the Okovar made the first contact with the humans 1,032 years ago. Humans, at the time, had about a dozen systems near the galactic rim. So, they had advanced spaceflight, but it was obvious they couldn't compete with the Federation, neither in size nor tech, nor so he thought. Through a series of misunderstandings and unfortunate events, we escalated much faster than could be explained away or worked around. A war was started. At first, it was pretty harmless. A shuttle here, a patrol boat there, but that too escalated at an astounding pace. Originally, the Federation had no intention to fight those humans. But with the clever speechwriters and even better lawyers, they pulled us into the war before we knew what was going on. 
In the beginning, there was still hope for peace. But after the Akava broke some rules of an old human law book called the Geneva Convention, and then refused to hand the general which gave the order over to them for trial, the humans declared a uh, total war. We were confused what that meant. Were they already fighting with all that they could? Not even close. They fought hard, yes, but after that declaration, the war turned into horror. Humans stopped taking POWs, and if they did, they tortured the prisoners for every scrap of information they possessed. They did not attack civilian targets, but every house and every town that gave as little as a sip of water to chief soldiers was declared a valid military target, thereby turning our own population against us. Then they mobilized. You see, the humans don't have soldiers and non-soldiers. Everyone has a potential for it. And after that attack, every single human wanted to help to fight. Those who could hold a gun were trained to be a soldier deadlier than three of our best combined. Those too old trained the new recruits, and those too young worked in the factories. But worst of all, they declared the weapons limitations null and void. Oh yes, they had horrifying weapons before. But what came next? Some people went mad just by seeing the aftermath. Nuclear bombs against infantry. Pathogens that force your own immune system to eat you from the inside. Chemicals that cause you to feel like you're being burned alive. Not a swarm sclearing entire planets within days. And that's not even the worst of them. And now it's over. The last human is dead. It should be time for celebration, but it doesn't feel like that. Why doesn't it? Because something feels wrong. No matter how hard they fight, a species so young that it only inhabited a few planets should have no chance to holding out this well as they did. They ended four species, including the Akavar, who started it all. They managed to hold out for a millennium against the entire Federation, and they killed about 50 of us for every one of them. That's more than three quarters of the GF population dead. My computer pulls me out my thoughts with a chime. The decoding of the last message received by the main communications hub. I reach to dismiss it when I notice the point of origin. Out of system. Have we missed something? Is there still somewhere a hidden outpost? I tap to open the message and read it. And then I read it again. No, this cannot be. That's impossible. But it would explain how they did it. The room starts spinning. This cannot be. I feel my heart rate rising dangerously. That is impossible! My mind starts to fade. We are doomed! My body collapses lifelessly onto the floor while the monitor continues to explain the message. Milky Way command to Andromeda outpost. Distress call received. Fleets 4 to 15 dispatched. ETA one month after arrival of this message. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1331 New Engineers, written by Comrade H. Vi Damn, feck, crap! Why am I swearing? Simply, I was fecked! First field deployment and my ship got assaulted. Figuratively, of course. But a corvette is basically assaulted if there are at least ten photon torpedoes aiming for her bridge. Those pirates may launch a few quantum missiles, too. I'm not sure. 
My ship's senses were fried because there were too many moving objects with hostile intent. We got out in one piece, as in no one died yet. But a ship? Well, I have no idea how or why we could have flown back to port. The engineer on board, a far cousin of mine, requested a transfer as soon as we docked. I'm done, he said. Not good enough, he claimed. Damn. I checked his smile. Top 8% of the course. Note that there was over a thousand other attendants and only 400 are allowed to graduate. So it means that you need to bust a lot of balls just to stay in the top 20. The old geezer called me up a few hours after docking. I took a call while sitting in the bridge. Well, because I was the last crew member who was both healthy and relatively sane. It was good news. He heard about my deployment and checked up on a few old friends. It turned out that there were not one, but two human engineers in this area. They were both graduated and unemployed, and they are eager to serve on board a space warship. Something about vengeance for their family due to pirate raids. We're gonna meet together in the old geezer's office. It's strange, really. He warns me about a few, um, quirky personalities of the two. One male, one female. The former can be said to be a vindictive bastard. The latter, well, she never disagrees with him. Strange, indeed. But they are engineers. Good, and have some experience under their belt. Those humans put lots of effort into training, really. I heard that their engineering course is five years long, and they must serve on board a spaceship for at least six months before graduating. Oh, and in those five years, they also have to stay in space for at least three and join a basic combat training course. The combat course is taught by the Zule, the most feared and respected warriors in the galaxy arm, if not the entire galaxy. Paranoid again, I guess. Humans see threats everywhere. And every time. Hell, I think some humans even consider a spray to be potentially dangerous. Right, I'm here, ringing the bell in the old geezer's office. The door opens almost instantly. I look around to see the room for the first time. It's plain, to say the least. A matching set of desk, table, chair, and cabinet. Plain, creamy wall with nothing for decoration. Strange. My uncle is an officer, and his room is, uh... Let's just say it's colorful, okay? The old geezer greets me immediately. Welcome back, kiddo. I guess that you were baptized now, huh? Oh, uh, don't worry about the plainness of my room. It is not really my room, per se. I borrow it from my engineer, Jake. He likes keeping things uh, simple and efficient. And here are the two engineers I want to introduce. The male one on the left is Nguyen Kwangmin. And his friend, the female, is Tran Kim Mai. I never think that you guys have such a difficult names to pronounce. Oh, we come from a different factions from that engineer Jake. Just call me Victor and her Minnie if you can't speak our real names. We're used to it. Is that fine? I think yes, our names are important. But if you can't pronounce it when needed, we're going to be as good as dead. And I still want to retire with a good pension and my lovely girlfriend here. The male engineer seems, uh, mature, I guess. His tone is friendly, but his body language is quite, uh, guarded and cold. Looks like he's trying to make a wall between two sides. I'm not sure if it's a good idea or not, but at least their files are good. 
They graduate from the hardest school on earth with decent scores. Not top positions, but when it's most rigorous school and they're trained to deal with all situations, it is a very respectable outcome. However, my eyes linger a bit longer than needed on the female engineer. Instead of a military uniform like a colleague, or boyfriend, or mate, I'm not sure, she wears a white apron over the black dress. The implant chip in my brain suggests that it's a branch of their culture. The outfit she's wearing is of a maid, a servant. I almost go fuzzy when knowing this. But again, they are human. Insanity is a part of their blood. If they are still sane, they will try to become insane. I just hope that I can fix my ship quickly. Well, it turns out that they not only fix my ship, they also upgrade it from top to bottom, and I'm not sure if I can call the Suzui too class anymore. The outside and overall side are the same, but, um, the fixed and bare minimum in just a week. Please note that the standard is something like four weeks, maybe five or six, but that is only if you realize that the reactor is leaking. Well, my ship was the worst condition ever, and they fixed everything in eight days. And then they got bored or pissed because of the inefficiency. I'm not sure. They pulled the entire reactor out. Well, they did remove the cell first. They are crazy, but not stupid. Jiggling with every single piece before putting them back together. Somehow, the captain, who, who is me, by the way, can cut down the cost of a reactor cell by 12%, while the efficiency of the reactor is increased by 90%, or 85% in a combat situation. That's a real feat. The reactor is only 70% efficient at best-case scenario, and they're still mad about it. Strange. But it would be better if they didn't use the cell case, which is hot like a Nova, to warm water for tea and coffee. Again, they said they got bored. They wanted to improve the cell case to limit the heat and energy lost. They didn't make it in time, but the male engineer did send the blueprint to a factory and earned a good chunk of credit of it. With the reactor done and still having three weeks left, they should have relaxed somewhere. After all, they're a male and a female, fertilizable and, uh, they're mates of each other, but, but no, they got bored again. This time, they messed with every system left on the ship. They attached some small deflators, like one used with the ground shock troopers, onto the reactor and warp drives, something about limiting the shielding needed. Well, there were just five meters of concrete and steel before they did that. Seems like I can spend more credit on booze for my crew. Knowing that we got boarded last time by pirates, the female engineer ordered a pack of items from her homeland. Kinetic weapons, high rate of fire, and in the color of pure black of death, the M70 Gypsy, the female engineer called it. Using 20mm rounds and firing them at over 6,000 rounds per minute, they can provide access denied to an area or simply shred the targets to pieces. But the accuracy of each round is quite low. I wonder if 21 guns like it can do the job. For some strange reason, Victor, the male engineer, is not very satisfied with the laser turret. The no attack time is too long, and he fixed it because he was bored. After fixing the reactor, warp drive, yes, he got bored again. Something about making the pole shorter and another barrel onto the same turret. Yeah, I'm not sure if he's sane. I mean, he giggled like a girl when fixing it. 
It was three days ago when he finished fixing it. Apparently, he locked down the entire ship to make quality time with his girlfriend. Whatever that means, uh, I do not want to know. And today, a week from deployment, he called me to inspect everything. It seems that they also make some minor upgrades to the bridge. Some softwares for recreational purposes and a massage chair. I like that crap. I swear my navigator is purring like a cat now. And did I say they also installed a fridge to store alcohol and soft drinks on the bridge? Yes, they made once inside the wall. I scan through it and I see at least 50 bottles. But 49 do not <coughs> exist. <coughs> but the grin on Victor's face and the skull from Meanie makes me feel uneasy. They told me the latest piece of upgrade. They were bored last night, and so they turned half the escape pods into combat drop pods, and they painted them pink with rainbows and unicorns. End of story. This is a special thank you to the one, the only, the legendary Erak Hino, who has become the only Tier 6 patron. I just want to thank the T5 patrons and channel members. Cam Maxwell, Casper Arnholtz, Australia the Dreamer, Trigger95, Pudic Yol, Meridian117, Olivia, Jordan Buxborn, Angry Marine, Albarden Gaster, and Barky. Thank you very much. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.